And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. You know, we're in 190-some countries, so somewhere, as they used to say about Star Trek, the sun is never setting on the other side of midnight when we're, when we're on the air, and when we're not. I'll tell you what, um, tonight is going to be a really intriguing show, and I might wind up doing a couple of things that I've been debating about for many, many, many months. Uh, we'll, we'll see how the conversation flows. But there's a lot of collateral investigation that's part of the uh, other side of midnight. Uh, I know I've been getting some emails, I want to say this parenthetically up front, from some of you folks who are not uh, totally happy with the other side of the news. Um, I want to say absolutely foremost and you know, ground floor, I support the First Amendment. I myself do not agree with some of the things that are said and presented on the other side of the news. But as uh, Thomas Jefferson once said, I will defend to the death their right to say it, to present evidence, to have airtime. Um, I just have, in some areas, very different views, again, backed up by a lot of research that goes on behind the scenes. Um, let me give you a little progress report. As you know, I've been looking for the right epistemologist, you know, uh, the science of how do we know what we think we know. And I think I found the right guy. Uh, he even made the cover of Time magazine not too long ago. My problem is it's like bass fishing. I'm trying to get him in the boat. <laughs> and I may not be able to do that for a couple of weeks. But we're going to do a show on how do we know what we know. Because the country is really fractured uh, right, you know, kind of down the middle with half the country not believing the other half of the country let alone government, let alone, you know, experts, let alone officials, uh, pundits, whatever. And it's something to me which is so fascinating because, again, it goes back to the kind of mantra of the hyperdimensional physics model, which is the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. Now, worse in this case does not mean, you know, bad. It means the the emotional side of the human condition is rising to the fore over what the founders envisioned in terms of the U.S. Constitution, the rational side. That's why we have two branches of Congress, the House and the Senate. The Senate is supposed to be the cooling rationalization saucer for quicker actions in the House and, of course, uh, how's that working out lately? Anyway, we're, we're going to grapple with all of these things as we go through an extraordinary time in human history. And to just show you how extraordinary it is, remember when the president, President Trump, uh, suddenly realized that he had full active COVID-19 and they whisked him away to um, uh, Walter Reed by helicopter and he was in the hospital for, I guess, well, three days and because they caught it really early, they gave him something like eight grams of a substance, again, made with modern genetic engineering called um, monoclonal antibodies. And after three days, feeling terrific, he bounded back to the White House, went up to the Truman balcony, whipped off his mask and 
declared that he had defeated COVID-19. Well, at that time, the president said he wanted everybody who came down with this thing to get this treatment. He was so gung-ho. It turns out now it is possible. The the um, uh, firm Regeneron, which is one of the pharmaceutical companies together with Eli Lilly, which made this cocktail, um, it turns out to be incredibly successful. It turns out it keeps people out of the hospital. It keeps them from dying. It radically shifts the odds. So if you get it, it's not a potential death sentence given your other comorbidities. The problem was there was no supply. Now, as of last night, I've heard from official sources There is so much supply that if you come down with COVID-19 and you don't want to go to the hospital, you don't want to certainly go on a respirator, et cetera, you call the nearest clinic and they most likely will have an an outpatient treatment with this Regeneron monoclonal antibody cocktail and you can be spared the worst symptoms, potentially even death. So this is a major breakthrough. Now, again, we're looking at doing a vaccine show. Very controversial. My um, love, Robin, was firmly anti-vaccine for the entire you know, 20 years that I knew her. And there were reasons. Those reasons now have changed. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a science show based on the science of old vaccine technology versus new vaccine technology versus tampered vaccine technology. We're going to go through everything, but again, we have to find the right people or the right person, the right doctor, the right uh, immunologist, uh, whatever. And we're in the process of doing that kind of search. And I'm hoping in the next uh, couple, three weeks to have the right person and then get them booked, and we will we will let you know. Um, for those of you who are new to the show, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our that's our website URL. You want to click on that URL. That will take you to the other side of midnight homepage. Click on tonight's banner. Is there really a global cabal with a secret disclosure agenda for 2021? With our guest tonight, Michael Hall. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under that, there is some little items that say guest page, fast links to items. Richard, Michael, click on me. That will take you to my section of radio with pictures. We've already gone through item number one. That's the backstory on the uh, COVID-19 monoclonal antibody cocktail. Very important if you want to stay out of the hospital. Number two. This gets back to something that Robin and I talked about over the years many, many, many times. When you take a drug, when you take a therapeutic, when you take a vaccine, does it matter when you take it? And this gets into rhythms in the physics, rhythms in the torsion field of which we are immersed. So item number two, this was sent to me by uh, Barbara Honiger, Turns out that a new study has shown that there is a celestial influence on human beings on planet Earth because of the moon. 
Now, for decades, researchers have been looking for correlations with the anecdotal, you know, evidence of, you know, more riots, more police arrests, more uh, public disturbances, more uh, of all kinds of stuff during a full moon. And they've not found any real correlation. This study, however, is really intriguing because, wait for it, it shows that about three days before a full moon, three days, remember the moon moves 13 degrees per day in orbit around the Earth. So about three days before a full moon and about three days before a new moon, when the moon is basically between the Earth and the sun, uh, but not causing an eclipse because it's just above or just below because of the tilt of the orbits and all that. Um, there is a pronounced effect of the lunar cycle on sleep patterns. People who uh, have been monitoring this, and this is a very interesting study, obviously, needs to be followed up. People stay up later and sleep less for a full moon and do the opposite before a new moon. So there's a modulation and the bracket of that window I just gave you is 19.5. That, of course, leads to my third item. Again, you're in uh, Radio with Pictures and Richard's Items. Recently, <clears throat> the um, the test community, the uh, follow-on to the Kepler Space Telescope, which is looking at uh, stars nearby relatively that are unusual in terms of transits in terms of you know seeing the the little sh- shadow diminution of planets crossing the point like disk of the star no matter how far away it is they've now found a system which has six planets in the range from super earth meaning they're just somewhat more massive than the earth to mini neptunes meaning they're you know, a percentage of the mass of Neptune. And they're all orbiting this one K-type star, which is an older, orangish, cooler sun than our sun. And this one turns out to be about 200 light years away. So it's very bright in these telescopes. And so we're able to actually see uh, details. Hold on, hold on. I thought I was going to sneeze. It's very bad to sneeze on live air. Anyway, um, this system is so extraordinary because it turns out that these six planets are all orbiting the star slash sun in a rhythmically resonant pattern. Each planet exterior to the inward one orbits the star in twice the, the number of of days or hours or minutes as measured by terrestrial time. I mean, it's an extraordinary resonance. And what's really weird, because I've seen a couple other systems that are like this, what's really weird is the astronomers, of course, who are looking at these kind of systems are trying to figure out the fingerprints of the formation process of the systems themselves. The idea being that every star starts out as a big, you know, rotating disk of gas and dust in the dark, in the galaxy, in an interstellar cloud, and condenses. And as it condenses, it spins faster. And in that large extended disk, 
as the star ignites and sends shockwaves of thermal energy and temperature through the disk from the center toward the outer edge. The temperature rises and the inner forming planets coalescing also in this disk, they lose their volatiles. So they become the rocky worlds, the silicate worlds, and the outer planets in the system uh, retain their volatiles, retain their gases, because they're far enough from the star that the light of the igniting sun does not produce a temperature shock that winds up blowing away the volatiles and leaving the naked uh, solid state planetary cores. That's the model. That's the idea. And it's been applied to this solar system, which in another show, we're going to talk about why using the solar system as a kind of an average is not true, because it turns out our solar system is not average at all. Anyway, in this system, it turns out that you've got dense planets exterior to light and fluffy sub-Neptune type gaseous worlds. And the lineup is totally bizarre, makes no sense thermodynamically, makes no sense in the standard model of the formation of solar systems and the variance thereof, and frankly has completely stumped the mainstream astrophysical community because it ain't supposed to be that way, again, according to this temperature-driven planetary formation model. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is obvious. This is a tinkered solar system. Just like, as I've said on many shows and in various writings over the years, this one, the one we're living in tonight, the one where you're listening to me. And if you have a tinkered solar system, there have to be folks that are doing the tinkering. But of course, they're not using primitive 21st century terrestrial technology they're obviously using a technology which can short circuit gravity, inertia, momentum, field effects that can move planets between star systems, literally project them across vast distances and assemble them in a system, again, which is only 200 light years away. Imagine the details of this bizarre rhythmic system that will be available to the um, uh, uh, James Webb Space Telescope when it's launched. I think it's going to be the end of this year. I, I've lost track because it's had so many, you know, potential launchings and cancellations and extensions because the technology of Webb is very, very, very difficult, mainly in the mirror unfoldment and then in the uh, sun shield. Anyway, details, details. Uh, what is this all leading up to? Well, if you look at planet Earth tonight, we are a planet in extraordinary sociodynamic and political and cultural turmoil. I don't think I would get an argument from anybody. Now, the argument comes in, what's the source of all this turmoil? Well, in October of 2017, President Trump held a um, dinner for the top military brass in the Pentagon, and it was a, it was wasn't a state dinner, but it was up close, you know. And then he uh, did some video afterwards, took pictures and all that. And during this kind of public, um, uh, you know, 
presentation where they were kind of all congratulating each other, he made a very bizarre comment. He said that that night, looking around the room at all his generals, he said, this is the calm before the storm. And now, for the last three years, all of his constituency, all of his followers, all of his voters, all the people that are part of QAnon and a whole bunch of other Trump, you know, associated uh, cultural phenomenon, they've all been waiting for the storm, the storm. Where's the storm? They were even waiting for the storm on uh, January 6th that what happened was exactly what they uh, were anticipating. Anyway. I am of the belief, and again, it's a belief. It's not evidence-based. It's kind of um, anecdotal. What we see, what we look around, what we're observing in our, in our culture around the world, I think that the whole COVID-19 thing, the global pandemic, was in fact the storm that Trump was referring to and the collateral effects associated now, of course, some of you out there are instantly going to say, well, wait a minute. How could he have known? And I would say, look who he was surrounded by and was their intelligence, again, in the model that I've discussed on this air with Chandra Wickrama Singh, was it possible that, in fact, the whole COVID-19 pandemic did not originate on Earth, did not originate with China did not start in Wuhan, but in fact is from outer space and is part of a deliberate attack on this planet, on its culture, on its civilization by folks who do not have our best interests at heart. And I'm sure as we go through the morning with Michael, We're going to talk about various aspects of this because I noticed that one of the things that Michael wants to talk about is COVID-19. Moving on, item number five. In the midst of this, Harvard's top astronomer, the director of the um, Harvard Astronomical uh, Astrophysical Department, Astronomy Department, a position once held by Donald Menzel, whose name is going to come up tonight in, in association with the classic UFO cover-up of the 40s and 50s and 60s. Turns out that Menzel, while at Harvard, was a double agent. He also worked for the CIA, and uh, thereby hangs a very long and complicated tale, which I'm sure we'll get into some of tonight. From this same institution, in the early years of the 21st century, the follow-on to Donald Menzel, the now succeeding director of the Harvard Astrophysical Observatory and Department of Astronomy, has come out with a book which basically is built around the bizarre appearance of this interstellar visitor in 2018 called Oumuamua. And his conclusion, backed up with a lot of good data and a lot of good evidence and a lot of good reasoning based on mainstream physics, says that Oumuamua was artificial, that it was sent here by someone. And, again, on his mainstream model, given that everyone out there in the astronomy community thinks the universe is random, so if something happens a lot, there has to be a lot of it, 
he is extrapolating that the solar system may be teeming with the equivalence of a muamua, alien technology, alien visitors, alien probes, a la a guy in the 50s named uh, Bracewell, who was a professor of radio astronomy at Stanford. Anyway, we are working hard to try to get Avi Loeb, who is the astronomer I'm talking about, from Harvard with this brand new book. We're trying to get him on the show. And um, again, I will, I will tell you uh, kind of progress of what we are, how, how we're making progress on that front if and when it occurs. He is, um, he's kind of resisting. For one thing, he thinks that uh, uh, midnight on the East Coast is, you know, the depths of the dark hours. So if we wind up doing the show, we will not unfortunately be able to have, uh, you know, live questions from the audience. Um, we'll have to tape him. But that is certainly an important trade-off uh, against actually having Dr. Loeb on the show to be able to run a whole bunch of things by him, including the totally opposite mainstream view, namely held by me, that Oumuamua was not a conventional but very large mainstream technology. It was, in fact, a very super sophisticated torsion field technology and its anomalous behavior can be tested by Dr. Loeb himself in the physics laboratories at Harvard University if he so chooses. So stay tuned. By the way, his book is called Oumuamua Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Boy, will that be an interesting conversation if we can make it happen, and we will let you know if, in fact, uh, we can. And what did I do? I think I did the wrong thing. Yes, I did the wrong thing. Okay. So I want to do this, and then I want to do that. Okay. Item number six. We're going to talk tonight with Michael about disclosure. And you know, based on all the stuff from Harry Reid, to the Nimitz events, to the Pentagon releases, to the recent uh, declassified documents by the CIA. All of this, to me and to a lot of others now who've been monitoring this for many, many years, all of this is pointing toward a major official announcement in the future. And some of us, like myself, think that it may not be that much of a distant future. In fact, we're projecting, like Steve Bassett and I in our conversation a few weeks ago, that this, this could really be breaking on or about March, spring of this year. Well, lo and behold, this is item number six. The national broadcasting company, NBC, one of the networks I used to uh, work for, is set to premiere – in March of 2021, a new television show called Debris, which is incredibly provocative because the debris, of course, is from a crashed UFO. And a combination of British and American intelligence goes to work, kind of like you know, Mulder and Scully in the new show, and kind of like a cross between 
you know, X-Files and Fringe to try to figure out how these fragments of this fallen spacecraft from somewhere out there is affecting the entire human race. Kind of sound familiar? Anyway, item number seven, those are the recently declassified UFO documents. We'll be talking about those with Michael. And finally, number eight, this is a surprise. A friend of mine sent this. I did not know the details, um, and I'm not going to spoil the surprise. It just is called It's Going to Be Okay, and I urge you to click on it and read to the bottom. It's a kind of illustrated comic, you know, a couple, three pages, not very long, but the punchline at the end is definitely worth the read. So without further ado, I want to introduce the guest of the evening, Dr. I don't, well, yeah, technically I guess you're a doctor if you have a doctorate of jurisprudence under your belt. Michael Hall is a lawyer. I don't want to use the term that's been applied to him because you know I hate that term and we'll talk about that. Uh, Michael's an attorney, a doctor of jurisprudence, and a former Superior Court Judge Pro Tem as an experienced UFO field investigator for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, in 1974. Hall is also a longtime consultant to the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, since 1995. He's the attorney of record for the National UFO Reporting Center since 1995 and the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomenon since 1999. He is also an experiencer and has represented such noted ufologists and researchers uh, like Grant Cameron, James Rigney, uh, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day, now retired, uh, my old friend Peter Davenport, Dr. Richard Haynes, another friend, and the initial Travis Walton alien induction scientist researcher, Dr. James Harder, who I also um, was very honored to have known. Um, Disclosure is coming swiftly as part of the issue of phenomenology, including the reality of potential alien presence on Earth and the rapidly approaching paradigm shift in consciousness, all of which is interconnected and all of which we're going to be discussing tonight. So without further ado, we've got about three minutes to the bottom of the hour. Michael, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Richard, thank you so much for that sterling introduction. <laughs> I don't know if I deserve it. Thank you. Oh, I just read what's written on the paper. What the heck? <clears throat> anyway, yeah. uh, we don't have a lot of time before the bottom of the hour, but let's let's tease people. How the heck did you get to be a lawyer in the field of ufology? Yeah, you know, I came to to the law later in life. Uh, I was thirty-two, and I just I was tired of being fired and laid off, you know, in my other positions. So I went to law school, but I had always been interested in the paranormal, the UFOs, Bigfoot, you know, ghosts and all that kind of stuff. So it was just natural that I kind of helped pro bono a lot of my friends who are in the field uh, once I became a lawyer. Hmm. Yeah, we're, we're, we're basically down to 30 seconds before the break. Well, okay, but let, let us pick up on the other side. Um, how you kind of got into this in a more detailed way and um, how that led you into some very 
interesting pioneering work. Okay? Wonderful. Okay. As I said before, you are on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Michael Hall. We're going to be going through an awful lot of interesting stuff related to uh, disclosure, recent developments, things that are falling out of the woodwork, the idea that we're being prepped. I mean, undoubtedly we're being prepped because, again, in addition to debris over on NBC, last Wednesday on Sci-Fi, they debuted another show called Cute Resident Alien, which is about an alien who's living masquerading as a human being here on Earth. Gosh, where have we heard about that before? You don't think that something may be up, do you? You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. For the other side of the news, my name is Christopher James, and I just wanted to give my full support to these wonderful people who are bringing incredible light forward at this time and moment in our world. The truth has never been more important, and I was incredibly blessed to be with them and share with them enormous truth on our very first interview, and I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing our world finally coming together under one hood, under one understanding that there's truly only one of us, and that there's only love that matters in this world, and this one truth is going to save our world, and I'm so blessed to be able to bring this forward and share this light with my fellow man and woman from this show this evening. So support them all you can moving forward. They're an incredible bunch of people, and Godspeed. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, January 30th, 2021. One month is gone already. Where does time go? Anyway, my guest tonight is Michael Hall, and we're going to be discussing all kind of current aspects of the UFO phenomenon. And I know there's other ways we can talk about this, exopolitics and all that. But in fact... If all of this has been true, then the inevitable conclusion is that this phenomenon, this reality, this invisible backdrop to human civilization has got to be working on our culture even now. What are the presentations, as the doctor would say? What's the evidence? Where are we going? Is someone out there literally trying to intervene in terrestrial history? Is that why we're seeing in part so many turbulent, contradictory things going on simultaneously, including the really important possibility 
that some of the things that the Trump administration did that appears to have one aspect, in fact, has a much deeper meaning. Michael? Yes. Okay, you heard the note I left everybody on. So you were you were interested in this weird, wild, crazy stuff for a long time. Um, go through some of the things that you did to try to satisfy your curiosity. Well, you know, initially when I was uh, very young, I would uh, I was into the comic books like everyone else. You know, I was uh, a hoarder of Superman comic books, Batman, Green Lantern. You know spent my quarter allowance every Saturday going down to uh, the local uh, co- comic book shop. <clears throat> and then, of course, I got into the um, the paperbacks later on from, uh, you know, the contactees, George Van Tassel, uh, you know, um, George Adamski, and uh, kind of started reading these strange stories in the 1950s about people being uh, abducted and having experiences with Venusians you know, people from other planets that are landing out in the desert at Big Rock and those places. Um, I've always been uh, interested in that. And when people ask me, you know, did you ever have a a traumatic experience as a child or something that started you on this path? I I never really did. Uh, It was just always a fascination, you know, with the what if these things are true. So I just kind of went in that area. Uh, you know, and basically then uh, later on in life, uh, I got even more and more interested and I started doing the studying and, and uh, you know, joined the organizations like APRO and MUFON and, and uh, were just fascinated with realistic uh, people who are, uh, you, know, um, you know, credible witnesses, uh, police officers, uh, you know, uh, doctors and lawyers and things uh, talking about the whole thing that I had read about in the comic books and and the uh, the paperbacks. And so then again, I just kept going and going and uh, literally. So, so hang on, hang on. Did you reach out yeah. to Jim and Coral Lorenzen? About the APRO organization, because as you well, wait, wait, know, hang on, there was a hiccup. We lost the first part of that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, I I reached out to the APRO organization, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization based out of uh, Tucson, Arizona. These are are all civilian organizations that grew up in the 50s because the government basically wasn't doing a damn thing and the Air Force was dismissing everything, right? Yeah, exactly. These were, uh, you know, the the people that were really doing something uh, compared to the Project Blue Book things that were just kind of being swept under the rug, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I was fascinated by the fact that there were civilians out there that were able to get to the details uh, of some of these amazing sighting reports. And as you well know, um, uh, that uh, Jim and Coral Lawrenson were quite, um, uh, you know, famous at that time. I mean, they were uh, literally on the forefront of uh, finding out uh, what was really going on when all of us were trying to uh, make sense of the fact that people were reporting saucers literally all over the uh, United States and different parts of the planet. So that was fascinating to me. I just, you know, went through the program and became a fuel investigator. 
Um, I didn't do a whole lot of stuff because I was all, also in college at the time, but it sure got my foot, foot wet, you know, when it came to the reality of the situation. So um, I, I want to give people a kind of a feeling for what that era was. What were some of the stories being reported? And do you happen to know why Jim and Coral got into it themselves? You know, I, you might even have that uh, detail more than I do. I don't know why they got specifically in, in, involved, but I do know during that period of time was the, um, the Travis Walton ah, yes, yes. And, of course, uh, that was a major um, <laughs> conundrum at the time because, you know, up to that point, there had been a lot of different stories. Uh, of course, there had been uh, Barney and Betty Hill in the 60s, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, uh, lots of different books and uh, written about potential abductees. But then all of a sudden, the fact that we've got uh, this uh, Arizona woodcutter, Travis Walton, missing for five whole days. You might want to uh, go over briefly what that story is, because it's so remarkable. And I've got a little little piece of data to tag on after you give people the background. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was just uh, – it is the most fascinating um, uh, UFO abduction story of all time, as far as I'm concerned. The idea that uh, Travis Walton and uh, seven or six of his uh, his friends were out woodcutting in the Sitgreaves National Forest. Well, these there. were they, they were professional loggers, right? Yeah, you got it. They're young young kids. They're like uh, in their twenties, uh, but they're put together by a uh, crew. Uh, um, uh, that's uh, working on a contract for the, uh, you know, the federal government there. And, and they're thinning out some old growth trees in the Sitgreaves National Forest one, uh, one evening in the winter uh, down there in Arizona, ne- next to Snowflake, Arizona, by the way. I never <laughs> place. But there is. It's a small little Mormon town. Uh, and most of these guys were living there at the time. They grew up in that area. And uh, they're coming around the corner at the end of the evening. It's all dark, and they're getting ready to go home. They've been working all day long. And there's a major uh, light that they're seeing from the forest uh, coming around a sharp curve. And So they're basically in their four-wheel, and they're bump- bouncing down this mountain road from where they've been doing a logging in yeah. the National Forest. And they suddenly see a bright light in front of them on the road. Yeah, off to the right-hand side uh, and obscured by the trees is this massive glow. They're thinking initially might be a forest fire. Of course, yeah. They stopped, the, they stopped their truck. There were seven of these guys jammed into this large international pickup truck, four in the back, three in the front. And Travis Walton just happens to be on the uh, passenger side door uh, in the front. And as soon as it stops, he jumps out of the vehicle for some god awful reason and starts running up into the woods to this uh, bright object. Oh, my. And everyone freaks out. Huh. And of course, it starts rising up out of the slash pile that it was hovering over. And literally, they see a saucer shaped object that's massive in size, glowing. And they think that uh, Travis and all of them are going to be uh, immediately killed by whatever this thing is. What year was this again? Uh, this was 1975. Ah. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, well in advance of any of these major um, abduction stories other than uh, Barney and Betty. Betty and Betty. Barney Hill, yeah. 
1963. Yeah. So um, all of these guys are yelling at Travis to get back into the car. Um, he now thinks it's a bad idea that he ran <laughs> out of the car, the truck, and uh, raises up from behind a slash pile that he was hiding from to get ready to run back to the uh, truck. And all of a sudden, Zappy gets hit in the chest with a blue beam, like a laser oh jet. Oh, And literally, they and say... The, and and, and the, the guys in the truck are all seeing this uh, like 100 feet away or so. Exactly. Probably even closer than oh that. My. Maybe 50 feet away from what I gather from the road there. Wow. They all think he's dead. He literally flies... So wait, wait, wait. He, he rises up. This blue beam comes out of the saucer, hits him... And then he levitates into the air with the beam yeah. on him. And literally hits the ground like a sack of dirt, and they think he's dead. Oh. Uh, literally, they're all, all six of them see this. Uh, and, of course, uh, um, uh, Mike, the uh, crew chief, just hit this accelerator and just took off down the road, uh, literally, to get, get out of there and to save themselves as well. So... Um, about a few a few uh, minutes down the road, they all gather their their resources and think, "Oh my God, what, what, what did we do? We just left Travis Walton, our buddy, back there." Uh, well, they thought like, he was dead. I mean, how many times right. do you encounter being hit by a blue beam and living through it? Let alone coming from some kind of a spaceship, yep. you know. Yep. Literally, they were freaked out. Mike Rogers uh, says, uh, I'm going back. You guys can stay here if you want. And they said, no, no we're not staying here. Was, was, was Mike the leader of the team? Yeah, Mike was the uh, the oldest guy, but he was only about 25 at the oh, time. Huh. Uh, and he was the uh, the guy who was in charge of the contract for uh, the Forest Service. Yeah. They get back there, and Travis is gone. No uh, trace at all that he was uh, even there, you know, no, uh, no scuffle, no blood, uh, nothing. And no saucer. And no saucer. Exactly. Uh, they can't believe what just, they, they end up going back into town. So wait, wait. when he's gone, obviously they're now thinking he's alive. He's stumbling around in the forest, dazed, maybe with amnesia, uh, obviously, why didn't they initiate a search right that that night? Well, well, they did. Uh, you know, with with whatever little resources they had, they tried to find out if there's any footprints. Uh, you know, somebody dragging themselves off into the woods. They they did a, a cursory search and couldn't find a thing that would show that he was still, you know, in the area. Hmm. And they they are panicking, as you well can imagine. Uh, Seven guys having different personalities, some of them uh, very religious, by the way, oh. uh, and some of them, you know, kind of sketchy as far as their uh, criminal background. They're all having to deal with each other in what to do next. And they're, of course, they're, they're all freelance contractors, pick up a federal contract. Yeah, you, you know, you all seen these television shows with a whole bunch of people with major diverse backgrounds. Yeah. And they're all having to, uh, you know, make uh, uh, giant decisions of their lifetime within a span of a few moments. And then Mike Rogers decides we're going to go back to town. We're going to report this and uh, get some help, you know, that kind of thing. So they, they, they do that. Uh, of course, the sheriff, the local sheriff is just can't believe their story. They literally tell him 
that there was a flying saucer that hit Travis Walton and seems to have abducted him. And he's not believing any of this, of course. <clears throat> and uh, literally, they go out uh, even that evening with more uh, um, deputies to try to find any sign of Travis. Couldn't find that. They come back over the next ensuing uh, five-day period with a massive uh, group of dogs and uh, horses and, uh, you know, aerial assault and everything to try to find him and do not find anything for five days. Hmm. Of course, there are in the interim there some... uh, Now, what time of year was it again? This was in November. This was kind of, of course, it's November in Arizona, but it's still cold. I was going to say, you're up high and it's cold, really cold. Uh, And uh, literally, they are... uh, getting a uh, heat from around the world. This was all of, all of a sudden, uh, you know, press from Japan and Russia and everyone was descending upon little snowflake, Arizona <laughs> with all of these strange stories. And of course, uh, lie detector tests are being taken and literally passed by these six guys who saw supposedly something happen. So so did the sheriff think that they maybe had murdered him or he died in some horrible accident, tree fell on him, that kind of thing, and they were just trying yeah. to, you know, put out a cover story to get out from responsibility for what happened? Exactly. That's exactly what uh, the sheriff thought. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, in in the movie, they kind of conglomerate. Oh, please don't bring up the movie. Ah! Oh <laughs> my God! Talk about the bastardization of a of a really good story. I um, uh, knew Tracy Torme back in those days. He's Mel Torme's son. He did this this the script. He told me personally they completely violated his contract and rewrote the script and put in all that stupid, absurd stuff. I'll bet. Yeah. And, of course, uh, you know, Travis uh, Walton kind of, you know, was disgusted with that as well and has come up with some pretty good uh, documentaries since then to kind of set the record straight. But, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating story, just the basic storyline that uh, literally people passed lie detector tests uh, confirming the basic idea that uh, he was missing. Now, when 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 when, when the, the six guys were given the lie detector tests, <clears throat> which I presume were official under the sheriff's department, that kind of thing, when they all passed, did they do the tests again? Get a different polygraph uh, operator? That kind of. In other words, it was so unbelievable that six guys could hold their story even under a lie detector technology. That what did the sheriff do? He must have been between a, you know, rock and a hard place. Well, he was, because in reality, this was uh, probably the premier uh, lie detector, um, um, uh, you know, person at the time. His name is Cy Gilson. And he was literally like, you know, one of the state uh, federally trained kind of guys that was just happened to be in the area. And when uh, they picked him to bring uh, bring him in for this uh, lie detector battery, uh, they were they were totally convinced that probably he's going to find out very quickly what the heck happened uh, on this thing. I don't know that they did multiple lie detector tests with other uh, operators uh, during that five day uh, or week period, because Cy Gilson was such a well-respected, you know, graphic 
uh, person at the time. So, right. um, yeah, they took his, uh, he, he was basically saying that, uh, you know, one of these guys um, uh, was, you know, had some criminal background there and stuff was a little sketchy on his things, but none of them uh, he could find were uh, trying to cover up the truth. And all of them seemed to be very consistent. But the real kicker, Richard, was just when all of a sudden out of the blue on the fifth day, uh, there is a phone call coming from a weird little phone booth uh, outside of Heber, Arizona, claiming to be Travis Walton calling his brother-in-law. Collect. (laughs) And back in those days, Travis, I've spoken with Travis about this in various conferences that I've met him at. And he says, you know, back in those days, you could literally go to a phone booth and get the operator and you didn't even need any money. You know, you just talk to the, yeah, the yeah. operator and, and get a, um, make a, 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 a collect call. And he did that to his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law almost hung up on him. You, you could do, you could do station to station. That meant you just called the number or you could yeah. do person to person collect, or you would say reverse the charges. Yeah. And then the person yeah. at the other end would either accept or not. So his brother thought he was, being lied to by some total stranger. Well, this was his brother-in-law. Oh, okay. So, um, okay. And, and the reason was his brother-in-law lived closer to this town that he, Travis, knew he was in now, this Heber, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona. He called him first because he figured his brother-in-law could pick him up faster than anybody else uh, and literally came out and got him and found him uh, literally just sunken down into this phone booth uh, and of course, uh, they hooked him up with his own brother, Dwayne, uh, Travis's brother, uh, who kind of kept him from the the press for a few days because Travis was in no um, in no uh, you know uh, shape to even talk with. What was uh, what was his condition, both mental and more important, physical? The strangest thing about it was that Travis thought that he had been gone for about uh, half an hour, you know. Oh Short period of time. And his brother told him, Travis, feel your face. You've got a full week of beard on your face. And that really freaked him <laughs> out, obviously, at that point. And, uh, of course, you know, at one point, they literally uh, got a hold of uh, some uh, medical advice. And they did, uh, they did find out he was quite dehydrated. Um, you know, uh, he had... Uh, had low electrolytes, you know, whatever you would think probably would happen to a person who is, uh, you know, not eating or drinking for a period of time, but literally was in uh, remarkable shape for someone who had been missing and didn't recall what had happened to him for the last five days. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating story. Some other things and details have come out since then. Uh, when he uh, literally relates to being upon, aboard the craft for a period of time, waking up and seeing small gray aliens around him uh, in some kind of a hospital or uh, setting uh, aboard the craft. And, mm-hmm. uh, and also he even saw some uh, humanoid uh, uh, people on the craft that looked just like human beings uh, for some reason in spacesuits uh, with helmets on that he uh, – took to being there to rescue him at the time um, that ended up kind of uh, not rescuing him, but uh, uh, 
knocking him out with some gas. And uh, then five days later, he wakes up on the road in uh, Heber, Nevada, Heber, Arizona. With no other memories of what happened on the ship. Yeah, uh, which is really strange. You would think that with some kind of hypnosis or regression, he could have remembered the rest of the five days. Well, not if he was unconscious. Exactly. That's very possible. And one of the re- one of the things that Travis is thinking even nowadays as he's reflecting back is that maybe he was so injured during this uh, time of this uh, blue ray uh, hitting him that he literally died and it took him that long to try to oh. fix whatever happened to his, uh, oh his body. Oh, my God. That's one of his theories. What an interesting it? idea. So, yeah. so th- someone, you tell me who, did try because this story became you know international it was huge someone did try hypnotic regression with him what happened um yeah it, it was it's my understanding uh that um uh, and was, Harper, was was i was gonna say was, was it jim harder it was my understanding he was the first uh uh actual investigator to get a hold of travis after uh his event you know there were some uh scam artists that were trying to get a hold of uh Dwayne um walton to get to his to his brother and that kind of thing and i think they finally hooked up with james harder uh our our mutual friend back in the old days from apro and uh, he was the the head scientist at the time for the aerial phenomena research organization i i think he literally did try to uh yeah he he was also a tenured professor at uh in uh in berkeley of course yeah um and quite uh an accomplished uh I think uh, prof- I, I th- yeah, exactly. Professor of engineering, but his avocation, his side avocation, was hypnosis. He tried many, many, many years later to hypnotize me. That's a very weird story. We won't go into that tonight. But so he <laughs> he was their resident expert, both in terms of the science, the engineering of of the of the craft, if he could get details, as well as how to get into Walton's head to maybe extract information that he didn't consciously remember. Yes, exactly. Um, And uh, though I was able to uh, uh, get to know um, uh, James pretty well, and, uh, you know, after that event, I I still was never able to understand if he did get any information from Travis during those initial, you know, regression uh, stories. I've never heard Travis talk about any details other than, what he's always said that he remembered consciously waking up aboard, aboard the craft. Hmm. I wonder if the folks in the craft and we're talking now the human guys who are in collusion with the gray guys, obviously, if they realized that if they didn't put him under, um, he'd remember and they didn't had things they didn't want him to remember a la Betty and Barney Hill. So they just knocked him out. Well, it sure seems like that, um, Richard, because the idea being as soon as the um, uh, Travis saw he's, uh, this gentleman that came into one of the rooms and he thought he was being rescued, he followed him into a larger hangar area of this, this ship, which he had no idea that he was maybe docked somewhere else other than inside the ship. And uh, they literally brought him into a lounge area and uh, kind of strong-armed him and put a... Uh, um, like an anesthetic uh, kind of uh, cup over his, his face 
and he passed out immediately. So obviously they had some concern about him uh, still being walking around conscious, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So this was kind of your real up close and personal intro to not only the ID of UFOs, you know, lights in the sky, weird things splitting around, but something which literally could, I hate this term, abduct a human being and return him. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, we had all been shocked, I think, with Barney and Betty Hill's story. The fact that it was in Life magazine, you know, big articles, and it was all over the place. But there was no real proof other than just, uh, you know, the story. And then all of a sudden, we've got uh, these, uh, these things coming out of the Travis Walton affair about 10 years after that, that literally kind of st- really show us that maybe there's something to this stuff. You know? It's fascinating the fact that we've got some proof now, or at least some evidence, let's put it that way. When you're talking about, you know, uh, a court of law being able to present something beyond a, a reasonable doubt or, you know, beyond a preponderance of the evidence, depending on the, uh, uh, you know, the standard of care and, and what you have to present. These are things you can present at, as evidence in a court of law. And I thought that was fascinating. The thing that always intrigued me, there, there were two parts <clears throat> to the Walton story that intrigued me. And remember, I don't do UFOs, so, you know. Because I yeah. realized early on that, you know, the, the, the landscape in ufology does not stand still. Oh, my <laughs> God, does it not stand still. But the two things that really grab, grabbed me about uh, Travis before I met him was, one, his physical condition. I know from personal experience you cannot wander around uh, Arizona at that altitude in, in winter and basically have almost no – you know, external application of, you know, frostbite or, you know, severe dehydration, sunburn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, aside from being, you know, a little dehydrated, he was just like he'd been spending the night now, you know, or the week in a hotel room somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, that's very remarkable. Well, that was to me at the time, what told me that there was a lot more to this story. Tell you what, we're at the uh, top of the hour, so why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning is uh, Michael Hall. We're going through one ancient case, ancient 1974, of ufology, because it's the background, the foundation for the idea of humans and aliens working together and neither being alone we'll get back to michael in a moment you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland fasten your seatbelt because there are even weirder things to come Richard C. Hoagland here. 
I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control Nine, to Major Tom. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. And welcome back, everyone. We're having a bit of a technical problem, so let me do that. Welcome back. My guest this morning is Michael Hall, and we're talking about uh, visitations, extraterrestrial visitations. Michael, in the community, would you say that the Travis Walton uh, experience was kind of like the turning point between the nuts and bolts ufologists and the folks that were really 
kind of looking now at physical contact between extraterrestrials and us? Yeah, I think that's a good characterization, uh, Richard. Um, you know, Ted Blaucher, Blaucher, over the years, we're always getting into the trace, uh, you know, evidence, the actual physical evidence of, you know, these saucers being, uh, you know, um, uh, interacting with the planet, you know, leaving, uh, you know, uh, crop circles or, uh, you know, certain kind of slag or anything like that. Um, and then all of a sudden we come up with this whole idea of potentially – you know, uh, individual witnesses from disparaging, uh, disparaging backgrounds and points of view, all kind of passing lie detector tests, confirming that something like this could actually happen, you know, to just normal people, basically, uh, you know, from uh, a small town in Arizona. So that was fascinating. It was almost as if a turning point happened, like, you know, the, uh, the December 16th, 2017 New York Times article all of a sudden. Ah, yes, yes. That was that kind of um, um, event that happened in ufology when Travis Walton all of a sudden uh, came out with uh, this, this evidence of something else going on. So which do you think was more dispositive, using the legal, legal term here, the physical condition of the victim, of the patient, of the potential, I don't know what you would call him in in legal parlance, and the polygraph tests of six other people, plus Walton, now seven, all saying something really off-scale happened. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it could have been explained for some reason that uh, maybe you know, Travis was spirited away and hidden, you know, and taken care of for five days. So yeah, in a hotel why, room. <laughs> yeah, he could, he could have been hanging out, just kind of waiting, you know, maybe with his brother Dwayne or something, and maybe pulling uh, the wool over everybody's eyes. But in reality, when that uh, lie detector test was passed by all six of his, con- uh, you know, friends, and and they were saying the same thing, you know, as far as the details mm-hmm. go. I think that was more dispositive than anything else at that point and really uh, set everybody back in, in, you know, the whole idea. And then of course, since then, Travis Walton has never really changed his story. He's never really embellished it, you know, and come up with strange, weird things that he's tacked on later. Uh, That's, that's very telling as well. Hmm. See, there are little interesting details about the whole thing that, you know, as a scientist really attracted me, like for instance, the blue beam, you know why it's blue? Ah, very interesting. I don't know. Because it's obviously a vibrational frequency of a torsion field, which I now know because I've measured it can reduce inertia and mass. And if you do it the right way, produces anti-gravity and the blue is caused by the excitation of nitrogen in the earth's atmosphere as the beam is moving through the air. Fascinating. Which is a now, detail that nobody but a nerd like me would know. Well, and, you know, one of my other clients, Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center, a good friend of yours as well, um, has also mentioned the fact that uh, some of these uh, unexplained lights and craft that have been seen have that blue tinge to them as well. Mm-hmm. And it can change colors, by the way. Well, it's all, it's like a fluorescent light. If you change the ionization, you change the uh, uh, threshold of the excitation of the molecules 
And so you get different colors depending upon which gases are being excited. And so the blue is, is see, I have seen that blue myself. When I was with CBS and I went down to photograph the first mission to the moon and I got a chance to use a very long camera that was made up for me on a rifle stock. Imagine getting on an airplane with that kind of device these days. Anyway, <laughs> I was able to photograph, you know, pad 39A from which the mission left, you know, like I was 100 feet away. And wow. the thing I noticed on the special, special film that I was using, which was able to maintain a huge range uh, over the light intensity of the landscape, the rocket, the Saturn, you know, the, the F-5 engines and all that, I noticed as the spacecraft lifted off and roared into the, Cal- into the Florida skies, there was this enormous blue trail behind it because the F-1 engines were exciting the nitrogen in the Earth's atmosphere. Oh my, you were you were probably one of the only human beings to catch that at the time. And we got uh, it on film, yep. Because uh, every oh. other, see, normally Kodak film had like a 10 to 1 range. So you either photograph, you know, the, the rocket or you photograph the exhaust, <clears throat> excuse me, but you couldn't do both. This film, yeah. it was called XR, Extended Range, developed by a friend of mine at EG&G in, uh, in uh, Boston. Uh, it had a straight line color latitude range, analog film, Kodak, Kodak, you know, ectochrome film from Kodak of 10,000 to one. So oh it my. could record, it, this light is so delicate, you can't even see it with the naked eye. Because when I was looking, I didn't see this, this set of colors at all. It only showed up on the film. So for those reasons, I said, hmm, the Walton case really is going to make me violate my prime directive. Don't go near UFOs because it was so damn encompassing of all the little details that should be there if this was a real event. Yes. Yeah, it was a shocker for most of us at the time who were were just dabbling into this, you know, trying to find out if there's any truth to the to the stories. Uh, Fascinating um, time to uh, have been involved in ufology. So when you got that up and close and personal, let's go back to Michael. How did that springboard you to the rest of your ufology development? Well, you know, uh, basically at that point, and I realized that uh, uh, all of these these stories that uh, I hear, uh, I got to take a little bit more uh, interest in the details and whatever evidence I can glean, you know, from them. Uh, obviously, there was some disinformation going on uh, at the same time. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, uh, certain uh, people that were involved in the field, like Howard Menzel and those kinds of folks, you know, from Harvard, who were kind of like throwing uh, disinformation all over the planet, trying to uh, debunk things as well. But every once in a while, uh, you would think, come across. I think you meant Donald Menzel. I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you for correcting yeah, me. Yeah, as soon as you said that, I was thinking Howard Messenger. anyway go ahead and uh you know so the idea being is that if if indeed this stuff is being thrown out there we need to kind of like you know write this stuff down connect the dots potentially 
uh, to what is really happening out there. So I got more and more serious as the time went on. And of course, you know, I, I had a normal uh, law practice for uh, well over now 33 years, uh, but um, uh, had always been interested in those kinds of things, not just UFOs, by the way, but, uh, you know, I live in the uh, the Bigfoot capital of the, uh, the world, <laughs> the Pacific Northwest. So I was interested in that and ghosts and all sorts of strange phenomena I kept hearing about. So um, it's just kind of morphed into them. Uh, my own bar association now has monikered me as the paranormal lawyer. See, that's the term I didn't want to use because I think part of the CIA, you know, anti-propaganda campaign against all this stuff is to label it like paranormal. Yeah, well, you're right. I'm all, I've been trying to think of another term that would, would substitute, like maybe hypernormal. Exactly. Like hyperdimensional physics, hyper meaning beyond accepted physics, but not beyond science. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So you're the world's first hyper, <laughs> hyper normal lawyer. <laughs> well, how did you get? Uh, let's let's jump ahead. How did you get into the law part? And did you decide to get a uh, uh, you know a law degree because you realized that the field of ufology needed a more grounded mainstream approach? You know, not really. Oh. I would love to be able to claim that you know I thought. I'm going to take up the cudgel and I'm going to go for it, you know, for ufology. Literally, I was, uh, oh, 32 years old. Uh, I had literally, uh, my first corporate position out of college was being Shaker, the country bear at Disneyland. You know, I was down in California trying to be famous <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> and at one point, I decided uh, I was tired of being uh, laid off and fired and, you know, working for people that uh, I really didn't enjoy doing doing that. So I, I decided I wanted to uh, be my own boss and went to law school later mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did uh, the two come back together? Well, almost immediately. Ah, sur- see, you can't avoid your fate. You may not have gone into the field with that intention, but fate had other plans, eh? Oh no! When 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 my good old buddies out in ufology find out that I'm like getting a law degree, they're going, "Oh my gosh! Thank God we've got someone we can now bug for." You know, uh, whenever someone is in uh, a paranormal or a unique field like that, they're they're probably going to put together a 501c3 uh, nonprofit corporation. They're going to need right. some uh, contracts reviewed. They're going to have all sorts of normal. You know, everyday legal issues that you have to deal with. So I kind of became the default guy for, you know, the field of the, of, uh, the offbeat, you know, when it came to uh, <laughs> researchers out there. And I really enjoyed it. Of course, uh, I've always been interested in that. And I had another skill now to bring to the table for my friends who are literally out there, um, you know, ahead of the curve, trying to find out what was really going on around the planet. Now, what kind of mechanisms? I I know we have FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. I've always been incredibly suspicious of that because it's like, why, if they're doing something that's extra legal, extra constitutional, would they trip over, you know, the Freedom of Information Act, all those blank pages that uh, uh, Stanton Friedman used to proudly hold up where you couldn't see a damn thing And he was like, well, this is proof they're hiding. Well, there's no way to know. It's not proof. It's just data. It's just evidence that 
somebody doesn't want you to know what's on that page, but whether it's incriminating or not. So how did you meld your two careers and how did you wind up with your law degree actually, you know, moving in, in the in the weird field of ethology? Well, you know, the the whole issue was that, um, you know, at one point you try to get beyond um, the details of, uh, you know, the, the freedom of information. You know, you try to read between the lines and what you can get and cannot get. Uh, and finally, later on in my career, when I found out that, for instance, the Admiral Wilson smoking gun UFO of the century memo, uh, when it mentioned the fact that all of these, uh, you now, know, hang on, hang on. That, oh, we're yeah. going to get to that. That's a much more recent development. I want to go oh, back yeah. to the evolution of Michael Hall. By the way, are you related to Richard? Richard Hall? Oh, you know, I wish I was. Who, I don't who, was, who was head of NICAP after, I think, Kehoe. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, uh, Richard's, uh, yeah, Richard Hall. I don't know that we're even related, but I, of course, you know, that's an iconic name in ufology for, for decades. Um, fascinating uh, character in, in himself. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how did you bring these two areas that almost are like oil and water because there's no, no more, more stuffy than a bunch of lawyers. I know. How did you bring this together and make progress? Yeah. You know, I was always shocked from the very beginning, Richard, when uh, my colleagues that even my law school colleagues uh, uh, would come to me and say, Hey, I understand you're interested in the UFOs. You know, I saw something strange myself, you know, people would confide to me. uh, And, (laughs) And literally, I would hold their confidences and, you know, not give me, but I was surprised on how many people in my sphere of influence when I was, you know, working for large firms, you know, clerking uh, for the prosecutor's office, uh, you know, those kinds of things would literally come up and say, yeah, gosh, my, my, myself and my, my grandmother, you know, saw something really weird. So, I, I was right from the beginning um, understanding that this was not just something to sweep under the rug completely, but uh, people are willing to discuss it uh, with uh, someone who's willing to listen to them, uh, you know, with an open, uh, open mind. Hmm. I have a completely non-UFO question. Yeah. What the heck is a superior court judge pro tem? Well, a pro tem, any kind of a judge uh, pro tem is what they call a uh, part-time judge. Uh, and literally, um, I was what they called a settlement judge for the uh, Thurston County uh, Superior Court uh, Family Law uh, Program for many years, where literally they would give me six divorces in a day, three in the morning, three in the afternoon, <laughs> after lunch. And they would say, uh, okay, uh, uh, Judge Hall, if you can settle any of these cases, you're going to save us thousands of dollars in man hours and woman hours if we can get these off of our docket. Uh, so I ended up being a head-banging mediation uh, settlement judge trying to get rid of uh, the calendar of uh, you know the family law thing. And that was a fascinating experience for me, trying to deal with people's personalities and their attorneys. Uh, and trying to get down to a bottom line, of, uh, you know, some kind of an agreement to, uh, you know, resolve issues. Hmm. So you really had both feet planted in the mainstream, quote, real world. And yet you had these folks behind the scenes and major law firms and corporations and all that saying, psst, psst, hey, 
Want to know a real cute story about UFOs? <laughs> exactly. And, and not only uh, UFOs, Richard, I had uh, friends and colleagues of mine saying, hey, did, did you know that there is a case out of the New York District Court, uh, Federal District Court, in the 1900s that literally shows the, for the very first time that a ghost, the testimony from a ghost was used in a capital murder case to convict someone of murder. What? Are you kidding me? And uh, so all of these strange stories I would be given, you know, in the in the back rooms and you know on in the off hours. And I thought these were fascinating stories. Yeah. Well, were they more than stories? I mean, was that a real one? This is a real case. Uh, this, details. Want, yeah, I'll give it to you real quickly. No, no, no. Uh, we got three hours. Come on, come on. Don't shortchange the audience. You know, this is amazing. This is, remember, law is built on precedent, folks. If a ghost testimony is admitted as evidence in a mainstream 3D court, that's not trivial. No, especially out of uh, New York District Court. Wow. On the East Coast. So um, go go for it. And and I've got another one, too, dealing with uh, real estate in a, an actual court determining that a house was haunted as a matter of law. That's a whole other case. But the, the interesting case of the uh, ghost testimony was that a a young woman was killed uh, and uh, went missing. Uh, her mother uh, reported it and obviously at first was one of the, uh, you know, suspects in the case. And she says that, uh, believe it or not, uh, her daughter's ghost came to her after she was killed and was and told her how she was killed and who did it. Hmm. And of course, the, you know, they're trying to, you know, think uh, maybe the the mother is trying to tell a story to get off, uh, you know, of the list of uh, suspects herself. Because right. family is yeah. always the first suspected. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, because uh, literally, uh, the testimony was where the body was buried. Sure enough, the body was buried there. Uh, sure enough, the body was um, uh, disfigured the way uh, the ghost told the mother, supposedly, or at least the mother said in court under testimony that it happened. Uh, and so basically the whole uh, investigation ensued at that point. And literally they put the mother on the stand. Uh, they relayed the, uh, the uh, ghost testimony during the trial. And literally uh, the guy that they fingered, at least the ghost fingered, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden confessed. <laughs> oh my God. And they put the guy on the stand and he had no, you know, no reason to, uh, you See, know, not... normally the, yeah. the, the, the legal establishment would say, OK, the mother's the perp because she knows all the details. Right. Exactly. So why did why did the real killer suddenly confess? So there was some kind of a relationship with this uh, person and the young daughter. Uh, and supposedly the uh, I, I don't know the details, but you can imagine if indeed you perpetrated a terrible um, uh, crime like that, and then all of a sudden that ghost is coming back and giving true information about you and what you did. Maybe it was had something to do with him, you know, deciding that uh, that was enough and he had to confess. In reality, he did confess, and and so what happened was that that was the first time the precedence that you're talking about where uh, the testimony of an actual ghost was used to convict someone of a capital crime. My God. What, what, what year was this? It was like 1910. 
So it was Holy quite a while ago. Holy cow, wow. Yeah, and this was back <clears throat> when... People... Well, that's kind of in the era where spiritualism was on the rise. And, you know, yes. um, I'm trying to remember a couple... Well, Blavatsky, that kind of thing was later. Anyway, um, so what was the other example? Well, the other example is really fascinating because it was a real estate case where uh, a gentleman... <laughs> is literally uh, moving to a, uh, a location, doesn't really know the neighborhood, uh, goes uh, to a real estate agent and asks him to find a nice house, certain ramifications. He wants to buy a house in this, this area, this town. Uh, the real now, estate, this was a case that you were part of, right? No. Oh. This was just a case that you know people come to me with, uh, ah. you know, with certain cases uh, – um, and matter of fact, I think this case is called the Sabovsky case, S-A-B-O-V-S-K-I. Uh, you can probably Google Sabovsky. Uh, Sabovsky or Sobieski? Oh, you might be right there. I think you're yeah, probably. Sobieski sounds more Polish than. than yes. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. this this is part of the literature in uh, jurisprudence. It is. Yeah, you can look it up, and it's a very fascinating precedent-setting case uh, in uh, the whole issue of ghosts in the law, in reality. Oh, my God. Because uh, this person then buys the house sight unseen, uh, moves into the house, and lo and behold, finds out, as far as he's concerned, this thing is haunted. This house is definitely haunted. Um, So, hang on, hang on. Is this long before Amityville and all that nonsense? Yeah, this was uh, quite a uh, well. Actually, this was probably in I think it was either in the 1950s or 60s. Yes, long before Amityville. Okay. Uh, and again, this was on the East Coast, I believe. And uh, the gentleman starts asking around to some of his neighbors who have lived there forever, and he says, "Well, sorry to tell you, but everyone knows in this this house has been haunted uh, for a long time. Uh, some people have died in this house, were killed in the house, or whatever." Uh, so we all knew it was haunted. We knew it was vacant for many years because of that. So uh, what the gentleman does is he uh, re- sues his real estate agent for rescission of the contract. Uh, that's typically what you try to do, you know, if you're in a bad deal with a real estate agent. And, of course, it goes to court, and he's saying, you know, my real estate agent should have disclosed that this house was haunted, and he tries to get redress. In a court of law, and of course, most courts of law are saying, you know, we're not going to touch this. This is, you know, ridiculous. How can you prove, you know, that a house was actually haunted? But in this case, this court, literally uh, in the dicta of the uh, ruling by the judge, said that uh, the testimony proves that this this house, as a matter of law, was haunted. He was he was able to rescind the contract and get his money back. Oh my gosh. And that was a precedent-setting case for proving that ghosts exist, potentially, and that ha- uh, houses can be haunted. And, of course, we all know there are certain things now that you have to disclose in a real estate contract. For instance, if someone has died in a house, you have to disclose that nowadays in real estate law. Huh. Well, that I mean, that's really – you can't really get more 3D reality – in terms of the law and establishing precedent, than the court basically accepting testimony from a ghost. Yes, wow. from a ghost 
and also from um, from neighbors and uh, and individuals who who literally show hauntings, you know, out of an actual physical structure. That that's fascinating in itself. Hmm. So we're coming up to the bottom of the hour. Is that a contradiction in terms? <laughs> so <laughs> what I want to do is I want to kind of leap ahead now that we've established your um, uh, you know legal bona fides. And, and talk about some of the more contemporary things, which are, as you said, you know, about half an hour ago, are totally transforming this hitherto bizarre, non-mainstream field into where it's on the front page of the New York Times. Okay. I'll tell you what. Exactly. Let us hold it there. And I think this is going to work. We'll see. Here we are. Okay. Okay. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. There we are. More switch problems tonight. My guest this morning is Michael Hall. We're kind of doing a quick dive into the background, the foundation of this phenomenology of UFOs. I've always hated that term because it's so much bigger, so much bigger, as you're going to find out in the next segment. You're on the other side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not touch that dial. Midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone on this Saturday night to the other side of midnight my guest this morning is Michael Hall and we're 
kind of been setting the foundation for what's going on now in this crazy upside down it's not possibly real world of ufology michael do you think that it's time for a major kind of branding change because things are kind of real up close and personal and you're going to you know move into some areas here that are really interesting oh this is definitely uh, an amazing time to have actually decided to be born on the planet. <laughs> huh. I'm so glad that we did because uh, literally for decades, uh, anybody into, um, you know, the offside of research, uh, even if you were into science like you have always been, you know, through your decades of research, um, we, we were kind of like spinning our wheels. And now all of a sudden, out of the blue, things are starting to hit the fan in the mainstream media and the mainstream uh, research circles out of Harvard, you know, all these things are coming to uh, a head. Yeah, but, but, but wait, wait. is it all of a sudden out of the blue or have we, if we look back and I wanted yeah. to do that tonight, don't we see a building block by block by block foundation to where the breakthrough, which I think was that December, uh, 1970, yeah, no, 2017, uh, yeah. New York Times article where that would have the proper cultural foundation. Are you aware of something called the Brookings Report? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Well, Brookings, as you know, in the footnotes, when they were looking at the idea vis-a-vis -vis NASA of extraterrestrial life, artifacts on the moon, Mars, or Venus, all that, they said it wouldn't really come into its own for 20 years. And they recommended a, a nationwide program of enormous, enormous, enormous cultural conditioning, television, film, books, newspapers, and they didn't know about social media back then because this was written in the 50s, but they basically recommended a cultural um, full-on program to get people ready to accept the unacceptable. Exactly. And you're right. There has been that for sure. Um, one of my clients, uh, the Canadian researcher, Grant Cameron, has always said that there is a program of slowly but surely dribbling out, you know, disclosure items and then pulling it back. They dribble something out. They kind of pull it back and they kind of wait and see how people react. Uh, and I think that's been going on, like you said, for the last uh, uh, you know, three, four, five decades, uh, ever since potentially uh, the 40s, 1940. See, part of that model is, remember we were talking about Walton and then the horrible movie. I think the horrible movie was horrible by plan, by, by deliberate design to keep people from going, oh my God, this is real. Because it wasn't time. It was too soon. It was mature. We had to wait another 30 years the end of the century before, again, from our modeling, it became time, which was December 2017. I think you're right. I think there's a whole lot of things that go into that timing. Um, I think they have algorithms. I think they have quantum computers working on it. <laughs> I literally do. I think they have uh, all sorts of AI you know, in place to figure out when is the tipping point that uh, the uh, the human race can handle uh, some of the truth, and who knows what kind of truth we're going to be 
uh, given at that point, but literally uh, there's a lot of folks, I think, calculating indeed what we should be uh, hearing and when. Hmm. See, that gets into something very important, which is everybody's been looking forward, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. But will it be when it arrives and it's coming, will it be real disclosure or will it be a story? Will it be a carefully crafted what they want us to think about what's going on as opposed to what's really going on? Yes, exactly. And, and, the and how do we tell the difference back to the how do we know what we know question? And that's the, that's the key right there. How do we know what we know? I mean, we are kind of in the midst of that right now, trying to figure out all the information we're being uh, bombarded with uh, in our daily lives right now. Uh, seems to be suspect, seems to be, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, not all of the truth. Who knows? And how are we going to determine? How are we going to be discerning when the, uh, the truth is presented to us? by uh, whoever does the presenting. See, the problem with X-Files was, yeah, Mulder, the truth is out there, but how the hell do you figure out what is the truth when you can no longer keep secrets, so you basically have to lie? Lie, 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 and get a bunch of people to believe the lie as opposed to the truth because they're rootless in they have never been given tools to figure out which is which. Which you, as a as a you know an attorney, obviously we're, we're equipped with how do you tell when a witness is lying? Yeah, no, exactly. You know there there was a fascinating uh, kind of culmination uh, episode to the X Files that I just it just blew my mind. At one point, when the smoking man and his group of minions in the background that basically controlled the world. You know, we're going to be taken off the planet by the extraterrestrials at one point. Right. Uh, they, they all met in this warehouse with their families, the uh, Illuminati, you know, of the planet. <clears throat> and literally then they were toasted by the extraterrestrials and wiped out, except for the smoking man uh, got away, you know, miraculously at that point. But you got to uh, realize during that period of time that we had been led along throughout you know, all of these uh, series episodes that uh, the Illuminati was in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, maybe they're not in charge. The oh, cabal, my. the Illuminati. In other words, see, um, uh, Chris Carter was on Art Bell one night because uh, Mike Gabera and I had basically uh, you know, talked about one of the X-Files as being an imprint of reality and that it was a thinly disguised leak from deep inside. And, of course, Chris Carter responded, oh, no way. These guys are nuts and all that. And then for some reason, he decided the next night to appear on our show. Art had been after him for years. And on the same show, he did the same, oh, you know, we just make stuff up. And then he admitted he had inside CIA and other sources, which, of course, to me was magic because – you can now look at the whole X-Files uh, story arc as building a la Brookings public acceptance of the unacceptable when it finally becomes public. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a re- remarkable story. I, you, you always had that in the back of your mind that, my gosh, these things are so close 
to what you hear in reality. Um, how did they get these storylines and from where? It's fascinating to hear him say that. Okay, we got some time in this segment to give a real runway to this Admiral Wilson memo. Frankly, I am not up on the details, so start at the beginning. Who the hell was Admiral Wilson? Why did he write a memo about UFOs? And why do you term it the leak of the century? Yes, and actually this is uh, Richard Dolan's quote when he calls it the uh, UFO uh, memo leak of the century. Okay. Uh, and basically this whole thing started out for me uh, basically way back in uh, 2019 when I get a... Uh, <laughs> Imagine things are moving so fast. We can now say way back in 2019. I know. Isn't that scary? Holy man. Yes. Yes. Art's Art, famous quick, uh, quickening. Remember the quickening? Oh, wonderful book. Yes. We're in the middle of it. Oh, I, and, and literally um, I get a cryptic text from uh, my client, Grant Cameron, uh, that says, uh, uh, Michael, I'm about ready to drop a major UFO bomb. I need to run it by you as the paranormal lawyer. That's what the text said. Nothing else. And I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Grant Cameron is telling me something major is coming down the road. So I try to get a hold of the guy. Hang on, hang on. Give a little thumbnail on who Grant Cameron, because we've had him on the show, but he has a very particular role in this landscape. Who is Grant? Well, Grant Cameron, ever since, uh, what, 1974, uh, with Charlie Red Star was a major uh, UFO investigator uh, researcher uh, in Canada, and he has the uh, White House UFO website. Yes, and has kind of specialized in uh, knowing and digging deep into what the presidents of the United States knew about UFOs. That's kind of his claim to fame. Yep, uh, and of course he has now been researching a lot of. Uh, um, the, uh, the archives from Stanton Friedman's uh, documents as well. So very reputable guy. Uh, very, and very, yeah. Stanton, I mean, when, um, when Grant says something, uh, he's usually got something to back it up with. He yep. really does. Yep. And so I'm panicking going, <laughs> what does he mean? It took me literally, Richard, nine days to get him to return a text to me or an email. I tried to get a hold of him, and I'm thinking – to myself, oh my word, did they off the poor guy? I mean, this is his last oh email my God, gets yeah, out before yeah. something happens to him. No, but he gets me on the phone finally and then frantically is telling me what happened to him at a conference uh, that literally James Rigney, a, uh, a guy from Australia, comes up to him at a UFO conference and says, Mr. Cameron, I have a document that uh, I want you to see. I think it's very important. And, of course, Grant gets this all the time, tries to kind of put him off for a little bit. And literally the guy says, Mr. Cameron, I just need five minutes of your time. He whips out his little tablet and shows Grant Cameron the first page of what turns out to be the Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson uh, memo uh, that has been uh, uh, transcribed by Dr. Eric Davis. And I'll tell a little bit about each one of these characters as we good, go along. Good. Um, literally Grant Cameron sees the first page of this memo and lit, he's Grant tells me over the phone while he's telling me what happened is that his face went ashen 
because he remembers names. He sees names that people would have no clue about uh, of being involved with this whole idea of reverse engineering, uh, you know, uh, super secret uh, programs that are uh, working as subcontractors for the government. And he says, where did you get this document? And he says, literally, uh, this document, as a long story short, was part of Edgar Mitchell's estate papers. Edgar Mitchell had passed away briefly a few years before that. Apollo 14 science astronaut. Yes. PhD, of course, uh, you know, and everything. And and uh, Edgar Mitchell was into the whole uh, thing of UFOs and, uh, you know, um, free the the organization uh, that he set up for consciousness studies and those kinds of things but his family was not and well hang on hang on ed also did the first interplanetary actually cis lunar between earth and moon hyper normal experiment with telepathy with yeah. rhine cards in the spacecraft while the guys on the ground were trying to you know catch his reception and I don't remember what the number was, but it was above chance. So that really got him hooked in, in all of this. It did. I think you're right, Richard. I mean, that was uh, quite an experiment for an, an, anybody in NASA to do at the time. <laughs> he was he was on the cutting edge, obviously. Yep, know? yep. Um, and so basically these papers uh, were lingering around in his uh, – his house and his uh, wife and kids wanted to get rid of everything. Oh, wow. Literally get rid of everything. When uh, oh a, a friend of theirs from Australia, not James Rigney, but another Australian, found out that they were going to throw away his estate papers and just Holy uh, cow. agreed to take them. Boxes, banker boxes full of paperwork, right? Okay. And then James Rigney... Another Australian who is uh, into ufology uh, runs across this other Australian at a conference and finds out he's got a bunch of stuff. And the person that literally has the paperwork isn't, is not up to speed on what ufology is. He was just uh, doing a favor for the, uh, the Mitchells. And so he uh, was given permission to go through the paperwork uh, at a, a time in the future and see if there's anything there. And long story short, this and a few other documents jumped out at James Rigney and he literally get, got permission to get a hold of them and keep them. Ended up getting them to Grant Cameron. Grant Cameron. So wait, wait. Rigney got them from the other Australian who was visiting the family when they wanted to toss out Ed's reason for existing on planet Earth. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's bizarre. I'm sorry. I'm a little personal here. But what kind of a disassociated family relationship where after your guy dies, you get rid of his life's work? Exactly. It's just a strange uh, conundrum of how this stuff actually even saw the light of day. And, of course, uh, Dr. Mitchell was on the board of directors of the NIDS Corporation with Robert Bigelow. And, uh, you know, why didn't he? This is a legal question. Yeah. Why didn't he legally, knowing how important his research was, set it up so it was bequeathed to some trust, some institution, some research agency, and his wife and his, his uh, in-laws couldn't touch it? 
You know, that is a very good question, and that's exactly what prompted me to create a, what I call a disclosure trust for Grant Cameron. You're way ahead of me there, because (laughs) indeed, uh, for the next six months, Richard, Grant and I are the only people on the planet supposedly have this document, 15-page, single-spaced document that names names, dates, programs uh, of incredible uh, import. Okay, two questions. Who the heck is Admiral Wilson, and why should we pay attention, and how many years did his memo cover? This uh, memo was uh, – it it covered a short period of time back in uh, 2002, Uh, literally. uh, It was when um, the NIDS program was still going. Edgar Mitchell was on the board of directors, um, and a guy named uh, Dr. Eric Davis was still around and quite active behind the scenes in uh, in the whole issue of, uh, you know, the deep state – yeah, and, he's, he's a physicist. I think he was in was it California or Texas? I forget. Um, yeah, with Russell Targ, it could have been Texas. Yeah, my, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, back then, um, NIDS at one point they were all always digging around for stuff. They wanted to know what was really going on. Robert Bigelow was a billionaire who really had, um, you know, the 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 idea that he wanted to find out what was going on in uh, ufology. So he would uh, get people uh, like Dr. Eric Davis to find high ranking government uh, authorities and try to buttonhole them on what they know about Mm. ufology. So Admiral Davis literally was uh, J2 joint chiefs of staff, second in charge uh, of the, all the military intelligence departments uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, you know, every, every intelligence. So this is the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs. He's under, you know, the, the, the top, top brass. He's second in command. Yep. From what years to what years? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure how many years, but in uh, 2002, he had just retired. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So and this is had- essentially almost contemporaneous. It was pretty much at the time. It was quite uh, new news uh, at the time because uh, the rumor was that uh, Admiral Wilson had tried to find – well, the whole story started with, uh, with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and um, Edgar Mitchell literally getting a meeting with Admiral Davis – or mm. Admiral Wilson because they literally uh, you know, had the disclosure, disclosure project that uh, – you know, Stephen Greer was working on with um, Edgar Mitchell and we're lucky enough to be able to get uh, an actual briefing with uh, Admiral Wilson at that point, a high ranking uh, naval officer in J2 and literally kind of uh, briefed him on what they knew and told the Admiral that there's stuff going on with these unacknowledged special access programs dealing with crash retrieval of alien technology that he probably did not know about and should know about. The whole black budget world. Yeah. And of course, Admiral Wilson is going, I can't believe that you're even telling me this because (laughs) I should know what's going on. So literally afterwards, after this, this briefing and uh, Dr. Greer has always been upfront with this meeting. And so has Edgar Mitchell. He confirmed the meeting happened. That was in in 1999, this actual briefing took place. 
then in uh, 2002, um, literally they get a meeting with Dr. Eric Davis and Admiral Wilson, who then kind of spills some of the beans because he is trusting uh, Eric Davis uh, to keep uh, his mouth shut on what he's telling him. And they meet in a in the back of the Admiral's staff car. <laughs> behind, the, behind the EG&G building in Las Vegas, McCarran International Airport. This oh, my God. EG&G, Edgerton, Germis, Hausen, and Greer, which is the same firm that my friend Charlie worked at when he developed the XR film. Oh, my word. At the other end of the country. And it's going to be an incredible movie whenever they get this. Oh, my God, yes. I can see it now. Oh, I tell you. So anyway, uh, the the idea is is that uh, for the next hour and 10 minutes, Eric Davis seems to have a tape recorder. Either that or he is very prolific in writing notes because literally for the next hour and 10 minutes, uh, he is writing a 15-page memorandum of what the admiral is telling him about the idea that supposedly I'm just going to synopsize what the memo says. Well, don't don't don't, don't shortchange it because most people have not heard of the Wilson memo. Yeah, you're right. Why not? We have time. Uh, great. Well, we can flesh it out too because there's so many nuances of this document that's fascinating. That literally, um, Grant Cameron and myself lived with for six months before anybody ever heard of it. And we were able to kind of vet the details of this mm. document. Matter of fact, if, if you're, you know, a lot of the people will say that this is a disinformation document. This is there to uh, just lead people down a primrose path, you know, uh, and basically there's no truth to it. But if indeed, this was my bottom line. If indeed you're going to come up with a disinformation uh, document that uh, you want to mislead people with, what I would do is come up with a two or three page document. I would name a few names that I could control in the document. So they're not going to blow the whistle. They're going to like still lead people further and down the rabbit hole. And you're going to kind of limit the, the information that you put in the document itself. In reality, this is so much more than that. This is literally vetting the actual people, programs, and um, uh, projects that were going on at the time that I could not find any fault with. So as, as an attorney, grounded now by necessity back when you were in the 30s, in your 30s, in the real world, having, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the term they uh, when, when you have someone give testimony, you um, in, in, in depositions, you've gone yes. through a million of them. You look at this with attorney eyes, with legal eyes, and you think it feels real. Initially, of course, I'm thinking this is way too good to be true. And so I'm coming at it quite skeptically. Uh, but indeed, when you check out the dates the names, the people that were named in this thing uh, that uh, literally were there in that position at the time, everything was was uh, lining up. It was fascinating to me that they would get that detailed in a document like this. Uh, and indeed, uh, it kind of uh, led me to believe that Eric Davis must have had some kind of recording device to get this detail recorded at the time. And then, of course, Well, wait, 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 wait. Remember the famous notes of James Comey after meeting for the first time with President Trump? (laughs) 
There are people who, after a meeting, can literally sit down and write a memo. And if you train yourself to do that, you know, in any important meeting, and Davis is not, is no slouch. He's a very, very highly gifted guy. So I don't think he necessarily had to have a recorder. Well, you might exactly be correct there because Eric Davis is indeed that kind of rare individual that could probably do that for sure. Yeah. Very fascinating. Uh, and it's not it's not word for word. Well, it's not, see, the reason is the reason you do it that way, if you could, is because he had the trust of this admiral. There would be no quicker way to destroy trust than to be discovered to have a recording device surreptitiously on you when you're supposed to be meeting in the middle of nowhere in the back of a you know limo. Good point. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, at one point during the interview, uh, the admiral uh, asks uh eric davis so uh, what what he he notices him taking notes obviously he says what are you going to do with this mm-hmm. you know and of course uh, eric davis is explaining well this is just for uh, internal you know uh research here at nids and that's uh, not going to go anywhere that was what he told the admiral of course and the admiral was willing to get into the details and spill the beans on some of these highly compartmentalized uh unacknowledged special access programs you know, you realize, of course, you're setting this up perfectly for the next segment because <laughs> we're so. we're we're at the uh, almost at the top of the hour, last hour of the other side of midnight. So, give us one major thing in the memo to hold people over the next three minutes. One major thing, uh, and and there's a kicker at the end of the memo that everyone has got to be able to listen to, and we're going to save that to the end. In the next half hour, yes. That's right. But the one thing that jumps right out right away is the fact that they're saying in this memo that MJ-12 exists. Not that it existed, but exists. Oh. Now, again, for new people, what's MJ-12? Well, of course, that would have been the uh, super secret uh, organization of military and scientific advisors that Harry Truman put together back in 1947, supposedly after the Roswell crash, to figure out what was going on. Okay. So the key thing you gleaned, and we're, we're, we're about to make the break here, is that MJ-12, the super secret interior government presidential commission, to look at, monitor, and decide UFO policy is still with us. Yes, in some form or another, um, it's still there. Wow. Okay, hold it there. My guest this morning is uh, Michael Hall. We are discussing ufology from the beginnings in the 40s or whatever to now. And believe me, the now is getting more and more intriguing. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we are in the Twilight Zone.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. This has got to be one of my favorite songs because it describes exactly what we're talking about tonight. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. That's time compression from the Air Force. And we're going to get there, maybe, in the next few months. Here we go. And Michael, we are back. I am here. <laughs> okay, so Wilson, high-level, inside-inside person, J2 and the Joint Chiefs. You can't get higher than that, practically. And he's talking quietly in the backseat of a limo somewhere in a back lot outside EG&G in Vegas, and he's spilling the beans. Yes, and uh, uniquely, he's spilling the beans to a gentleman uh, by the name of Dr. Eric Davis, who really knows the right questions to ask, because he literally is on the um, uh, NIDS board of directors with uh, Dr. Uh, Mitchell um, you know, and Robert Bigelow and, and you know, Colin Kel- Kelleher and, you know, Russell Targa, all these guys that have been trying to find out what's going on for decades, uh, literally have uh, been banding together trying to find out what's happening. So this is quite a unique opportunity uh, for Eric Davis to question uh, the J2 in charge of all of the military uh, intelligence departments on the planet. Wow. Okay, so no wonder the other side said, oh, it's a hoax, it's just made up, it's just nonsense, it's just, you know, what, all right, get more into the nitty gritty. What are some of the really amazing things that Wilson revealed? Well, um, literally, he is initially saying that um, he he finally uh, decides to make some phone calls after that meeting that he had with Dr. Stephen Greer and Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Uh, and um, uh, and basically, he's he's kind of trying to call their bluff. So they literally leave him with a briefing document with phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, he is starting to make a few phone calls. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Admiral Wilson is thinking these people are going to, like, just, you know, blow them off and hang up on him. And in reality, when he, make, when he dials these numbers, these people are concerned on the other end. Initially, how in the heck? How the hell did you know? <laughs> uh, and so I mean, that, you're only a J2. How the hell do you know what's going on in the real secret U.S. government? And these indeed are the real. These are the unacknowledged special access private uh, contractors that he's calling right now. Mm. Literally, they are freaking out. Uh, and, deep, deep, uh, deep black ops. Deep. Yeah. Even, even Congress doesn't know what's going on in these, you know, oh, no. programs. Oh, no. And these, these are not uh, recoverable by FOIA requests or anything like that. Okay. And literally, uh, Admiral Wilson finds out very quickly that a few of the phone numbers that he is given and calls end up uh, sending him to the same four subcontractors, the uh. same people. In other words, he's narrowing in. I can tell you who they are. Lockheed Martin. (laughs) There you go. Raytheon. uh, Maybe EG&G. And uh, Boeing. You know, uh, that's a good guess right there. Yeah, I don't know, but I would assume so. I don't know the details of the actual uh, four that he came up with. Oh, darn. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's not said in the memo, in other words. Oh, what happens what happens is no i think you're right on there richard as far as your guesses go uh but what happens See, is the reason i picked eg&g is not because of my friend charlie but eg&g had the exclusive contract to photograph every nuclear test we ever did and my friend charlie developed the cameras including a million frame per second 1 million frames per second black and white camera to put on like um, uh, uh, Kwajalein and some of those Pacific islands to record these H-bomb tests. So they would have been, you know, documentation, photography, EG and G, they've got to be in the mix. Yes, exactly. And of course, that's the company also that runs those Janet flights to area 51. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, what happens is, is they all point to this one major subcontractor that then Admiral Wilson gets on the phone and dials up and says, uh, uh, hello, this is uh, Admiral Wilson, J2, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. I understand you guys are involved in reverse engineering of alien technology, and I have not been read into your program. This is a mistake <laughs> that you need to um, – uh, change. Correct immediately. Correct immediately. And of course, they're going, ah, oh, ah, oh, Admiral, uh, my goodness, we can't talk to you over the phone about this, of course, but uh, let's get together immediately and we'll discuss this. So the ad- short story, the Admiral then flies out uh, to uh, probably the West Coast somewhere, we don't know exactly where, to meet with this uh, this company, this this you know, contractor in their SIF, their safe, uh, you know, uh, vault where no electronics can be, uh, you know, uh, eavesdropping or anything like that. And here's the, this is the fun part of the story, Richard, that I was just chuckling to myself 
uh, as for, for, for months on end when I was reading this in the memo, when no one else knew it other than Grant Cameron and myself, is that they met with the uh, project director for this, uh, this company. Uh, the, uh, the program, um, the, uh, uh, the, the guy in charge of all of their security, and their attorney. I thought that was hilarious that the attorneys are involved. Of course. <laughs> See, you did get into the right field. <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, the attorneys are. So they, they called themselves in the memo here, uh, the gatekeepers. These were the guys that literally were in charge of trying to keep uh, everyone away from this company as far as the details of what this company was doing, because Supposedly, they tell the admiral that uh, a few years before this, they had almost been outed in a Pentagon audit that ah. lit the whole thing up, and people were in the uh, black ops uh, uh, arena were freaking out that anybody could get close, even in a Pentagon audit, of knowing what they were doing. So they were quizzing the admiral initially. They wanted to meet with him to find out how they found out about. Yeah, where's the leak? Where is the leak? Exactly. <clears throat> so <clears throat> at that point, uh, I, the admiral is in this room and starts getting a little heated in his conversation with these guys because here is a civilian contractor telling the J2, Joint Chiefs of Staff, second in command of all the military intelligence departments that he does not have a need to know Amazing. of what huh. they're doing. Literally, he says, wait a minute. If I don't have a need to know, who does? Where, where is your bigot list? Now, I read this in the memo, and I'm going, wait a minute. What is a bigot list, and why would they be using <laughs> racial terms like this? Uh, uh, so, so it's bigot like, you know, anti, anti-Negro, anti-whatever, right? It's spelled exactly the same, B-I-G-E, and I'm going, what is a bigot list? Wow. Now, I do a little research in, in betting on this whole thing, and I find out that literally in, in intelligence circles, the bigot list is the list of those who would have a need to know. The term came from uh, the World War II uh, invasion of Normandy, where in, in literally they had a list of advanced officers that met on the Isle of Gibraltar to plan the Normandy invasion. Ah. And their uh, orders, these officers, it said, to Gibraltar, to Jib, in their orders. And in reality, it became kind of like an iconic thing that if you got to Jib orders, you had the need to know of what was happening on the inside scoop. And in reality, in the, uh, in the uh, later times, they just reversed Jib to jib, to be bigot. Oh my God! And it's not an acronym; it's an inside joke. It's an inside joke. So anyway, <laughs> I when I found that out, I'm going. Now wait a minute. If you're going to make a, um, if you're going to make a disinformation document, would you go that far? I don't think so. No, you know, I mean, that, no. Yeah, that that is really strange. So I thought that was fascinating that the admiral asked for their bigot list. They showed him their bigot list. And believe it or not, the Admiral then tells um, Eric Davis, Dr. Eric Davis, that it was funny that there was nobody in the military on the bigot list. There were no White House personnel. There were no um, Pentagon personnel. There were no um, 
high-ranking politicians, you know, that you would think would uh, maybe even intelligence, um, Senate Intelligence Committee people. Mm-hmm. Only uh, people on the bigot list, a small group of probably only about 400 individuals on this list, and he was not one of them. He couldn't believe it. Okay, question. Yeah. Did he ever find out who is at the top of the list and giving the orders if it isn't the president? No. No, hmm. that, that's the real mystery of this whole so thing. So we're looking at a deep state second parallel government involved in the most important reality of our time. Who the hell are we and what's our relationship to who's out there? And we don't know who runs the show. And we can get close to that as we get further on into this document, because there are some clues, I believe, when you get down to the By the bottom. way, Michael, we're going to have to have you back because I think we're going to spend most of the evening on Wilson. And we'll, ah. we'll have you. No, I'm, I'm serious, because we, we have three hours to drill down deep. We've given people foundation. They now know your credibility, your source's credibility, the project credibility. Now we have the details but I don't want to skimp on the details because you know what they say about the details. Oh, I, w- I would be honored, Richard. Thank you for that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a time of my life being able to actually get some of this stuff off my chest that I have not been able to do, uh, you know, on a, on a forum like yourself, because uh, literally there's a lot of disinformation about this whole area of uh, disclosure. You sure. think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can no longer hide stuff anymore, as I said a couple hours ago. So the only way you can obfuscate it is to lie in four different dimensions so nobody knows how to figure it out. Yes. Yeah, and our, our jobs, of course, is to give, give the truth that we see it uh, from our discerning points of view and the uh, decades of research that we put into this and let people make up their own minds. See, that's sure. why your jurisprudence background is so invaluable, because you are literally simultaneously occupying two worlds, the normal and the hypernormal. Um, it, it is always a strange thing to... Uh, Walk that fine line, definitely. <laughs> okay, back to Wilson. We got 45 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the real issue was now that he, he literally finds he's not on the bigot list. Uh, he, they're not going to tell him what's going on uh, until he starts getting really uh, heated in his conversation with these folks going, you know, if, if you don't give me the information that I am requesting here, I am going to go... Which, uh, which to by the way, he's entitled to by law under the Constitution. Yes, exactly. There's nobody uh, higher than him as far as the, um, the intelligence departments of the military, literally, yep. on the planet. Uh, and they are saying, no, uh, no, you're not. So he says, I'm going to my, uh, I'm going back to the Pentagon. I'm going to rake you guys over the coals and stuff. And this is what they tell him. <laughs> um, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Oh, my word. So literally, uh, he uh, calls their bluff and says, I, I will. Um, now, it's kind of funny because this so is wait, like wait. A, his boss is the chairman, right? Yeah, that would have been the Joint Chiefs of, of the Joint staff. Chiefs, yeah. Okay. And, and the, the only. Pen- and the only guy above him is the Secretary of Defense, SecDef. And the guy above him is, of course, the president. So he's basically three, you know, Kevin Bacon, 
removes from the guy who can order these guys to do it. Yeah, I think you're right. Closer than Kevin Bacon even. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so um, he calls their bluff. And then finally, at one point, there is a breaking point in their meeting in this secret, uh, you know, vault. Uh, and literally, it's funny because the breaking point happens when the, um, the, the, the guy who's in charge of their security, um, uh, they, they, they ask him, first of all, the admiral says, I want to make sure this is clear. The Admiral is thinking then when he goes to talk with these people that literally they are probably working on reverse engineering of probably Soviet and Chinese technology and that the UFO phenomena is kind of like a cover-up. That's what Admiral Wilson is thinking. So given given his background, that was a logical progression, et cetera. Okay. And, And he lays that on the table. And he says, you know, listen, let me let me just be honest with you guys. I, I'm thinking that you guys are probably doing this with, you know, reverse engineering of technology that's terrestrial and stuff, and that the UFO thing is just a cover-up and stuff. He says, is it Chinese technology? <clears throat> and they break it down a little bit. He said, no, no, Admiral, it's not Chinese <laughs> technology. Well, do you and, remember, it, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a real-world example that the Admiral was right, kind of, because yeah. a few years ago, the CIA – put out some kind of memo. I mean, again, we're talking contemporaneous last three or four years where they claimed that a lot of UFO sightings, most of them were the SR 71. Yeah. Remember that? Exactly. Total disinformation. Even, even the TR three B's were, you know, just misinformation, mis uh, identifications for sure. Yeah. So you're right on, on track there. And then he says, well, is it, is it Soviet? They said, no, uh, Admiral, it's not Soviet. And then the admiral gets flabbergasted and says, well, what on God's earth are you guys doing? <clears throat> Literally, there's a breaking point at that point. The program director looks to the security advisor. The, secu- the security advisor, by the way, used to work for the NSA, was an uh, officer in the NSA. Okay. Uh, and the NSA guy looks at the attorney, and the attorney says, go ahead and tell him. That was the breaking point of this meeting, and right. I can imagine what, what it what happens in the movie, whatever they're going to do. I was say, this is going to be a hell of a movie. Why did the attorney, why did he I, suddenly... I couldn't believe that the attorney was the tiebreaker here or the, the go-to guy that they're both asking whether they can tell the admiral and break the bigot list and tell him what's going on. <clears throat> and literally, that's what happened. Or the maybe attorney... the attorney was just really sharp and he knew this guy was not going to let go like a bull terrier and better to keep it contained in that room than to let it go to the White House. You know, I think that's probably something that an attorney would do. You know, okay, listen, we've got, we've got opportunities here, you guys. We can get this guy on our side if we play a little bit of uh, Patsy with him here. You know, let's let him know a little bit about what's going on and stuff. So literally, they end up telling the guy, Admiral Wilson, at that point, that they – a long time ago, uh, became in possession. They were in possession currently, the military was, of a craft that literally could fly through interstellar space, through our atmosphere, underwater, and get this, through dimensions. This is in the memo. And the, and you know, the hang, on, hang on a second. You asked before... 
did Eric have a recorder or was he just good notes? It seems to me the Admiral was raised in the same school where as soon as he got out of the meeting, he had to have taken notes. Otherwise, he couldn't have recited this years later to Davis. Very good point, because it's so so astonishing, those items that he is relaying to. You would think that uh, you might forget about that after a while. You know, you it, it'd be something you'd block out of your mind even, you know, this too outrageous through interstellar space. Well, if he hadn't had the meeting with uh, Stephen and Edgar Mitchell, yes, he may have looked at this wholly differently, but he had a kind of forewarning of unbelievable, you know, Clarky and third law things he was going to find. And then when they break down and admit, it's like, remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. Mitchell and uh, Stephen predicted this is what he would find if he could dig deep enough. Exactly. And his jaw must have dropped to the floor ah. that time. Um, or literally. he's thinking to himself, how am I going to get out of this room alive? <laughs> exactly. I know I'm very serious. Why did, they, why did they not knock him off? How did he survive? Because yeah, remember, there was another admiral who ostensibly, I forget the details, committed suicide. And to me, it looked like a hit. Oh, yeah. Some years ago. No, that would have been, um, you know, one of the MJ-12. Um, actually, was that the chairman of MJ-12 at one point? I'm not um, sure. I, I forget the name, uh, but I but I knew oh he was a highly decorated, very visible member of the Pentagon, and they claim he committed suicide. Didn't buy it for an instant. Was shoved out of a uh, window of a, uh, a psych ward. No, that was, that was that was Forrestal. I'm talking much more oh, recently. Okay, yeah. Much like I think it was during Clinton's uh, term. Anyway, oh. back back to Admiral Wilson. By the way, what's his full name? Admiral uh, Thomas Ray Wilson. Thomas Ray Wilson. Remember that name, folks. It's and funny. I'll tell you what, that poor guy lives in the Midwest somewhere, retired, and uh, has not said a word during this entire uh, post-event of this leak of the document. So I can imagine he is taking a lot of flack and heat from, from lots of folks, but mm. has, not, has not confirmed anything. Although Eric Davis, uh, the scientist who took the notes, has been giving some really remarkable clues uh, to the veracity of this memo since then himself. So that's been fascinating. Mm. So he was suddenly told, blunt-faced, we got a craft. <clears throat> we don't want to tell you where we got it. <clears throat> you know, that's a detail. But it can go through interstellar space. It can go under the oceans. It can, you know, fly through the atmosphere. Oh, and by the way, it can go between dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, we are now, all of us, hearing about the idea that uh, we are supposedly all ascending into a higher dimension somehow on the planet itself. Well, that's so, the change of the hyperdimensional frequencies and the physics and all that, which I've yeah. been talking about boringly for decades. But so, yeah, that's, that's a kind of a background. Yeah. That's why all this stuff is hitting the fan now, because it affects consciousness. Exactly. Everything seems to be connected, Grant Cameron says, to yep. consciousness somehow. Yep, yep. And you've been saying that for decades yourself. I know that. Um, here, here's the, let me just wrap up the memo. No, 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 we'll, no. Let's go back to that meeting where he's hit with this. Do it yeah. sequentially. We got plenty of time. 
Okay, let me let me go to the next step here because this is very fascinating. What happens next? Uh, literally, uh, he gets all the uh, information from these guys, and he goes back now to his uh, his buddies at the Pentagon. Okay. You know, he was going to go see them anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but now he's going back to the Pentagon, going, "What is going on here? Uh, there is literally supposedly something happening." in these unacknowledged special access programs. No one's told me about that. I should be in charge, of course. Uh, And um, uh, we need to figure out whether this is even constitutional, what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. So then he literally gets um, a few of his colleagues. I wouldn't say bosses because no one is a J2 boss at the Pentagon uh, to Admiral Wilson, but literally some of his colleagues like uh, uh, Oki Shannon, uh, Jacques Gansler, guys like that at the Pentagon are talking to him, or at least tasked to talk with uh, Admiral Wilson, and literally tell Admiral Wilson to stand down at this point. Wait, wait. He gets back and they gang up on him, these other generals and admirals, and say, what yeah. the hell are you doing? Exactly. But how did They're- they know if they weren't read in? Because literally they find uh, from Admiral Wilson that he knows. He is going to them going, wait a minute, what, what did I find out here? And, of course, they already know, and that's the mystery. They so, so wait, wait, the un, the, 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 well, they're not underlings, but they're other members of the Joint Chief Staff. They know, and he doesn't, as J2? Well, somehow they know that he now knows. So obviously they might have known something before him, or they were just briefed. Who knows? We, we don't right, know the right. details okay. of when they knew. But what happens is, is that, for instance, Jacques, a guy named Jacques Gansler at the Pentagon gets a hold of Admiral Wilson and says, listen, if you don't stand down here, you're going to lose uh, two or three uh, stars. Uh, he, he is, you know, a four-star general. You know, or Admiral, Admiral uh, and and he is uh, not going to get his pension. He's going to like you know be busted, and uh, will will never get any kind of uh, you know um, uh, advancement in the future. But wait a minute, all that would have to be done by the president. Well, I don't know. It's How would they pull that off unless they fake some big, huge, you know? catastrophe yeah. personal you know proclivities i think the admiral or the general who was murdered they accused him of some kind of you know obscene behavior or something and he was so embarrassed he killed himself so they could have set up a fake scenario where it would happen within the services as opposed to going to the again why didn't they just kill him yeah well and uh, who knows what was on the table at that time uh, I think literally uh, these people at the Pentagon that were his colleagues were kind of doing him a favor at that point going, okay, listen, this is the deal. You got to back off or else. Right. Kind of a, but here's the strange, weird thing. It happened on the last page of the 15 page memo, Admiral Wilson's smoking gun memo. There is a line where Jacques Gansler then tells Admiral Wilson, okay, listen, you got to sweep this under the rug. Don't tell anybody about this. He says, UFOs are real. Alien abductions are not real. He tells Wilson. Hmm. Now, that's a 
real curveball to anybody in ufology because, you know, they're going, wait a minute. Totally, you know, totally, yeah. Well, totally back to went, Travis Walzen. Yeah, there you go. It kind of like goes full circle here all of a sudden. And in reality, um, I got to thinking when I first heard, read that, uh, literally back in 2019, January 2019, I had this document. I'm thinking, what what does this mean? Why would this strange twist be in the document? So I'm thinking to myself at that point, maybe what's happening here is they are disinforming Admiral Wilson at that point in case he goes rogue and decides to go out with the details of the memo. Even people in ufology is go- are going to discount what he says because he's saying that alien abductions never happen. Well, it parallels what happened in the UFO community under Kehoe. Remember how everybody was all excited about nuts and bolts spacecraft and they wouldn't touch real aliens, ET contact, abductions, whatever? Yes. It's Haldeman later coined a, fr- a phrase, the limited hangout. Hey, hold it there. We're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Michael Hall. And boy, do we have some amazing things to get into in the next half hour. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't go away. You'll never forgive yourself.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. In your mind, you have capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think upon the recitation we're about to Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. You know, a long time ago when this song came out, which I think was in the 70s from Karen Carpenter and, and her brother, amazing team, I said to myself, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen any time. This is, this is a leading indicator. And decades and decades and decades went by and nothing. And now we're on the threshold of maybe everything. Let's listen. Another time, another era, another place. We are your friends. Thank you. 
and transmit thought energy far beyond the moon. You close your eyes, you concentrate, you get all that away. To send a message, we need to lay out our contact I just can't get over that song because, you know, Michael, it really kind of encapsulates the big conundrum. Are they friends? Are they anti-adversary? Or are they something else? How did Wilson, when he was basically given an ultimatum, how did he respond? Well, in reality, uh, as we know now, uh, he uh, kept his mouth shut. He was fur- furious, uh, but decided that uh, he could not uh, risk losing his career. Uh, he later on uh, did get uh, promoted. Uh, and uh, For being a good boy. For being a good boy. He retired uh, and, um, of course, uh, denied you know, any involvement in this with, <laughs> when, when it was leaked through uh, the Australians, uh, you know, in Edgar Mitchell's estate. So it's been fascinating uh, story. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, the, the, the whole idea of this thing being so detail oriented, uh, like I said, anybody can Google that term, Admiral Wilson's smoking gun memo and read all 15 pages and how detailed it is. Uh, do we have that posted on the uh, on the website tonight? Um, 
You know, there might be a link through my bio. Uh, yeah, let, find- let, let's do this. Send it directly to Kintia. We'll we'll put it up as a separate item because it's too damn important to be three layers down. Oh yeah, wonderful. So okay, we got about twenty minutes. Uh, I don't want to get into any of the other other stories yet because we don't have time to complete them. I want to give them the amount of time that they that they uh, deserve. So let's kind of look at conclusions based on all this evidence, which of course is part of your own bio and all that. Where do you think we're going next, and roughly when? Well, that that goes to the real issue of the um, the real kicker was the December sixteenth, two thousand and nine and seventeen front page article of the New York Times. For some reason, um, you know this this whole article uh, and thing with Admiral Wilson took place in two thousand and two, uh, that kind of a thing. But uh, literally, okay, in uh, two thousand and four. We have to put this in timeline with the Nimitz encounter off the east, the west coast of uh, California, and the Tic Tac UFOs that are being seen by the uh, USS Nimitz and those veterans there. And then, of course, uh, 2015 on the east coast, uh, the President Roosevelt uh, aircraft carrier saw some other, you know, uh, things. So things have been. You mean happening. you mean the, the uh, Teddy Roosevelt that became prominent in the whole COVID thing about a year ago? The same one, the same aircraft carrier. Mm, interesting. Uh, that was uh, 2015 when they literally, uh, or at least fighter jet pilots uh, on that craft, uh, literally saw what they called a uh, square with a sphere inside a translucent square <laughs> zip, zipping past their cockpit not more than 50 feet away from their craft. How big? Uh, well, it was uh, the Tic Tac on the West Coast was a 40-foot long craft. About the, the size of, of a fighter jet. About the size, of, you, you got it, exactly. That's what Commander Fraber called it, uh, about the size of his own uh, F-118. Uh, and uh, I believe the ones on the West Coast were a little bit smaller than that. Uh, able to go through between them. So wait, wait, wait. The sphere and surrounded by the cube was about 40 feet, right? Well, I'm thinking it could have been smaller than 40 feet uh, because uh, from what they said, it was so um, close to their cockpit that uh, something that big might have uh, <laughs> the wow. wash might have thrown them right out of the sky. So now, I don't know how big that was. See, I'm incredibly fascinated. Again, it's the little details that tell you something is real. Do you know what a, a sphere inside a cube really represents geometrically? Oh, no. You would know better <laughs> than I would. It's a sphere englobed in a double tetrahedron. It's, ah. it's twice the message of Arthur C. Clarke's monolith in 2001, but in a different geometry, in the original form and no fighter pilot could make that up. No, you would not. Literally. Uh, and the fact that it's translucent so you can see both. Exactly. Uh, air and a sphere. So obviously what these guys were doing was showing them literally the physics by which they fly, exist, and transit 
dimensions. Ah, good point. Very good point. And uh, uh, literally, this is leading up to that uh, 2017 front page above the fold article in the New York Times that come out and confirm for the first time in history that uh, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense are claiming that UFOs are real. Yep. So that was fascinating. All of a sudden. Well, so, don't you see the trend curve? Come on. You'd have to be deaf, dumb, blind in an old meat locker buried under the North Atlantic not to see where this is going. The only question is, how fast? When do exactly. we get to the next major break point? Well, I'll tell you what happened just recently, which is a major break point for me. I don't know if people have picked it up due to this uh, COVID distraction, but uh, literally a couple weeks ago, the former Israeli defense minister. Or in charge oh, of, yes, yes. Let's flesh that out. Yes. Um, literally comes out. I mean, you know, we've had uh, Paul Hillier uh, from the Canadian defense uh, minister saying that UFOs exist and he's been knowing about it and hearing about it from the, uh, the U S for years, but now the Israeli uh, defense minister who is uh, just retired after 30 years comes out and says, guess what? There's an intergalactic federation of planets of extraterrestrials that literally are out there in space and that our government knows about them and literally was going to uh, release that information to the public uh, recently. And the extraterrestrials themselves said, it's not time to let the information out yet. That's just a couple weeks ago. So implying, Michael, there's a clock. Yes, exactly. And we are not in charge of that clock, it sounds like. Yep. Yep. Well, remember, in our model... The clock has to be synchronized with the physics. You know, make no wine before it's time. You can't surf if surf's not up. You know, all those cliches. So if if, if the guys upstairs are, are modulating the disclosure rate, they will pick the time according to the physics. And our model says the physics is now, meaning within the next few months. You know, that's what I'm feeling myself. Literally, the planet is in upheaval anyway. <laughs> no, not anyway, as a direct <laughs> result of the physics. Remember, right. in our model, the physics, when you transit between these eras of smooth physics, you have what we, we would call in, in, in naval parlance, turbulence. We're in that turbulent period between the uh, unfolding of the, of the different Vedic cycles. We're between the Kali Yuga and, and the, the one that, you know, comes after, the step function. And in that interregnum, everything breaks down, becomes incoherent, becomes bizarre, becomes extraordinarily amplified and polarized. And we're seeing all that stuff. And then there is the break point. You got it. Bingo. And I think we are s swiftly approaching that for sure. What do you think of this current administration and the whole idea of congressional hearings on the Hill that Bassett is so enamored with? And, you know, um, um, what, who's the who's the guy uh, who was head of uh, uh, I want to say Poindexter. It's not him. John Podesta. John Podesta. 
yeah, who, yeah. who kept giving out leaks under, you know, when he was with Obama and then he was with Clinton and, you know, he's, he's, he's a major player and, and Bassett thinks it's all going to converge on congressional hearings sometime around March. Okay. I heard, heard Stephen say that you're right. Um, but from you your know, own independent analysis, where do you think we are? You know, I think we are. Um, that is also, by the way, the time frame that we're given with the Senate Intelligence Committee's demand for, you know, the disclosure of information. You know, oh, wait, wait, wait. Tell them about that because that's a hidden kind of sub-memo yeah. inside this bill that was passed with a time limit. Exactly. Uh, because that was a strange add-on, obviously, to the uh, – Advocated of- by Senator Mark Rubio – in Florida, yes. Who now could be running in the next senatorial race against Ivanka Trump? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So talk about talk about the the, the sub memo addition to the to the bill, where by law, the Senate Intelligence Committee has to have this report on essentially UFOs. And not only that, but this bill uh, actually creates the. Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, mm. which is like a um, an actual you know governmental program. Real that's kind of, world bureaucratic response. That's exactly right, and kind of like a a, a subsequent uh, a precursor to the ATIP program that uh, you know was created uh, in this you know prior to this 2017 New York Times article that we found out was in existence for 22 million dollars to study the the phenomena. So literally they have been given uh, till uh, mid-March to come up with <laughs> unclassified report of what the, uh, the deep state knows about UFOs. Now, who, who knows how deep we're going to go here as far as the details and whether we're going to get down to the Admiral Wilson level, you know, in this memo. Uh, and yeah, but wait, 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 wait. This is like being a little bit pregnant. Once you open this door, even a crack, everything is going to fall out of Thibber McGee's closet. And that's a reference that very few of my audience are probably going to remember, but it's very apt. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't say, oh, there's UFOs, but there's nobody in them. Or you can't say, oh, there's UFOs, but it's only one kind of species, and they're from 50 million light years away, and they could care less about us. They're going home. It all is going to come out once this report is made public. It's a it's a house of cards, yep. obviously. Yep, yep. Pull one of them out, and all of a sudden, you've got to answer a lot more questions. Okay, we're going to follow some of this stuff up in future programs. So you know, don't uh, don't mark your calendar up too closely because um, as things develop, see what I try to do is I try not to book very far ahead because the world is changing so fast. But to stay relevant, you've got to stay at the cutting edge of what the hell is going on now. Uh, next couple of weeks or next week, we're going to have impeachment. What I find amazing, and this is a two-part question, what is your opinion of President Trump's creation of the Space Force? Yes, and talk about uh, timing, right? Yes. Um, created. Uh, and indeed, um, the issue is uh, who's uh, beholden to who, you know, in these military uh, operations, 
uh, who at the Pentagon is in charge of those kinds of things. We've all heard about the white hats, uh, the black hats, the gray hats. <laughs> uh, who knows, you know? A whole millinery shop, yes. Yeah, of, of people that are on the inside. And, of course, the Space Force would have been the brand new uh, branch of the military. So that is very suspicious the to me. The first time we've created a new branch in over 70 years since the exactly. Air Force was split off from the Army. And you would have think you would have thunk that this would have been maybe made out of the Navy. You know, the Navy has been traditionally the the long term you know plan for uh, military and even in space. But no, no, this is a whole separate uh, program. Hmm. Now, here's something you don't know: the past president has gone through various vicissitudes, right? There's been an yep. insurrection. There's been, you know, claims that the, the, the election was totally stolen, all of that crap. In the midst of all this, literally the day that he was being impeached in the House of Representatives for the second time, which you would think would kind of occupy a president's mind. <laughs> yeah. He signs an executive order moving the Space Force from his current home, safely under several trillion tons of rock at Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, where NORAD is, and worldwide links and satellite links and global communications and everything defense-oriented of CONUS, the continent, is there. That's where the Space Force should be. Trump signs this order under the cover of all the mainstream news coverage. Oh, impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. Oh, again, again, you know. All that excitement leads the mockingbirds all the way down to the other end of the lawn, and Trump quietly signs an executive order moving the Space Force from Colorado, from NORAD, from Cheyenne Mountain, and whatever protections it offers in this nuclear age, to guess where? Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, my word. Home of Werner von Braun. And the yeah. rocket Nazi engineers we imported, you know, 70-some years ago as part of Operation Paperclip to basically create NASA's space program. And that's, that's your neck of the woods right there. You got it. We've been for decades. Oh, my word. So what's going on? Because, again, if you do things by executive orders, as everybody's learning – they can go away when the next guy comes in or gal. But if you make it legislation, it will stay forever. So why would the president, knowing that Biden was going to change everything, which he's done in the last week with 42 uh, Douglas Adams executive orders, why would Trump think that transfer would remain unless there's a continuity between Trump and Biden who it has now been said in the Washington Post is not going to change the Space Force. He's leaving it as the new branch. What the hell is really going on? Oh, that is quite telling, isn't it? Holy mackerel. Yep. By the way, did you happen to see the night before the inauguration, uh, the president-elect and the vice president-elect standing at the um, Lincoln Memorial end of the reflecting pool. I don't think I saw that one. No. And all those lights. I'm going to, we'll, 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 
we will put this up as, as a separate uh, two, two images. One is the wide-angle view of the mall with the lights paralleling all 400 of them, representing 400,000 COVID deaths, we are told, down uh-huh. toward the monument and behind it, the capital of the United States. And from the capital, extending into space, are two brilliant blue beams of light. Almost, when you look at the camera angle from the Washington Monument, almost like it's an illuminated runway with the target in the foreground in the shot. Oh, my. Like, this is where you're going to want to land. What if the big event coming is not hearings, it's not generals, it's not commentators, it's it's not you, me, it's literally out of the day the earth stood still, a saucer landing on the mall in recognition of the runway, pointing them to where they need to land. Oh, my. Symbolic, my- symbolic, symbolic to the ultimate nth degree. And we'll post those, post those, both those pictures. I'll get that straight because it's stunning when you see it laid out in context. Oh, definitely. Holy mackerel. Uh, what, a, what a timing on, on that. And, and, of course, we've all heard about Project Blue Beam, you know, the, the, the false That's flag. That's what you see, two blue beams stabbing up. And I, I have found that they have not been used on the Capitol either before or since the Biden inauguration. That was unique. First and yeah. last time they've used. And when I saw all that fencing all around the, the district and the Capitol, Right. The first thing I thought of because they're not keeping terrorists out. They're keeping people out from the landing. Oh, my word. And my that's why you want a reserve force of 5,000 National Guard troops. Go watch the movie. It's all laid out there, courtesy of Robert Wise, decades and decades ago. And they're going to be there till the middle of March. Till. There you go. Hey, guys, guess what? The show is over, at least this one. Hey, Michael, you got to come back. We're going to do the Nimitz in detail. We're going to do COVID and our model and your model and whatever. Things are coming to a head. And I want to thank you for being on tonight because you've given us a great setup for what is to come. Tomorrow night, we're taking a dash back in time to Rome. Until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and look to the skies.